You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. In the next few moments, we will try to give you an impression of a new kind of film experience. They're sending back my message. What does it mean? There's just no message. If there's an intelligence there, I want it to know there's an intelligence here. I think you're making a mistake. I think you really want to talk to me. Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yeah, but they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. Those weird hairs that were growing out of your back, I had them analyzed. They were definitely not human. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Here, I would usually give some type of hint of what we're going to do next week, but I forgot it's a to ask Josh. So yeah, yeah, there you go. So he'll probably let you know later or we'll figure it out. But join the sleaze. We appreciate it. That's right. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we are in our fifth year of. There's something like a hundred plus bonus episodes as well as our bonus transmission series, which uh, we just did one recently, a big boy where we we were talking about the new Michael Bay film Ambulance as well as Batman and X and a lot of the big new releases that have been out recently. So if that interests you at all, patreon.com slash Lezoids podcast. And speaking of which, we did have quite a few people make the jump this week so we'll give them their shout outs here we had uh nick ferguson upgrade from five dollars a month to ten dollars a month to join us for the monthly virtual screening that we do on the last thursday of every month we also had a heart boyd uh do the same thing but actually upgrade uh for a year um we had um who else here? Adam Craig, Heath Jarvis signed up, DVS signed up at $10 a month as well for the virtual screening. Lots of people, the virtual screenings, they're getting popular. You might want to get in on them. They're fun. Um, William Henderson, Jared uh, Scott, Christopher Fitzpatrick, Brian Alm, Liam uh, Dunigan, uh, Vinicius Elsie. These guys, come on. Uh, Damian Jordan, <laughs> Randy, John Hayes, uh, Mark Power, Stephen Mousseau. Andrew Ross. Wow, there's a lot uh, here. Um, Quaylen D. Tanner, uh, Bennett Glaish, or Glass, who signed up for uh, an entire year for the show. So thanks to Bennett. Uh, we had you. Ian McKinney. Uh, Tony fan. I think I know who that is. Might be a Tony <laughs> Scott fan in particular. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out later. Uh, and then John O'Shea. So thanks so much to uh, all of you folks. Hope you are enjoying those bonus episodes we appreciate the support uh the other plug for the week uh as always is uh apple podcast if you guys are listening on apple podcast and i see the stats i know that you are i can see you right now listening on apple podcast scroll down to the very bottom give us a good old rating and review down there it helps us climb the ranks at itunes and find new listeners and the very last plug is merch if you like the poster art that based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for the show, you can get that put on basically anything that you can think of. Uh, a hoodie, a shirt, a pen, a pillow. We've had people buy a little bit of everything. You could even just get a poster <laughs> if you'd like. The link to that is in the description as well as over at sleezoidspodcast.com. But that is the intro. Welcome back to another week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis. And joining me also, as always, is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. 
Welcome. I think two weeks ago would have been the last time uh, you folks over on the main feed would have heard from us, and uh, we would have been doing uh, a bit of an outlier episode where we were talking about uh, Eastern European art horror about the rise <laughs> of uh, fascism uh, in, in specific countries. We talked about one, the cremator from 1969, which was a Czechoslovakian film by a Holocaust survivor and was absolutely unhinged and psychotic and uh, had had a man who really loved burning bodies, um, and, uh, thought he was the new Buddha get recruited by the Nazis to maybe be the architect of a certain piece of machinery that you could imagine. And then we also, we paired that with Bella Tarr's Workmeister Harmonies, which was a uh, much more... saddest movie I've ever seen. (laughs) Really, really bleak um, and meditative uh, Hungarian film. And uh, the pairing sounds strange, but they actually make a lot more sense uh, together than you would expect. And we we made that case with a friend of the pod, Perry Rulland, two weeks ago. That was over on the main feed. If you haven't heard that, go back and check it out. And then last week, over on the bonus feed over on the Patreon, we talked about uh, a, a very specific kind of atomic age anxiety body horror. We talked about The Incredible Shrinking Man from 1907, directed by Jack Arnold, probably most famous for The Creature from the Black Lagoon, mm-hmm. but um, uh, also from a story by Richard Matheson, who's a very famous sci-fi writer, did I Am Legend, did uh, all kinds of Twilight Zone episodes. So we, we talked about uh, a man getting very, very tiny, <laughs> slowly, through incredible um, analog uh, effects from yeah, the 1950s some of the best. that yeah that man fights a cat and you believe that he's fighting a cat uh, <laughs> yeah. and he's small as hell takes out and, a tarantula uh, also, it's it's badass that's right and it also has some ideas about uh sort of like where middle american men feeling inadequate were kind of at in their headspace and rendering that through the body and then we paired that with toby hooper's 1990 film the latest toby hooper film we've talked about but spontaneous combustion which is uh, his version of a kind of old school monster, mad scientist kind of throwback film, but updated for more of an 80s body horror gruesomeness uh, yeah. and has Brad Dourif uh, setting things on fire with his mind. And sh- just exp- people are spontaneously combusting, as you can imagine, and it is <laughs> disgusting. So uh, if you want that episode again, patreon.com slash podcast. That was last week's bonus episode. But uh, moving on to this week. Last week kind of teed us up a little bit because we compared spontaneous combustion uh, quite a bit to a little filmmaker called David Cronenberg. And I kind of did that specifically because I knew that we had a big episode coming this week. We have uh, a a special returning guest who should be waving the belt. I think he is the most <laughs> returned guest. This is number five or number six. I'm actually losing track. That's how many it's been. But yes. uh, we have joining us calling in uh, over from over the pond our Australian film correspondent, uh, Andrew Law from the Bunta Vista Socialist Club podcast. Andrew, how you doing? Oh, very good, fellas. How are you? <laughs> good. Yeah, Glad we're doing all back. right. The king has returned. Yeah. Yes, yes, I am. I'm doing the, uh, I'm wearing my robe. I'm shadow boxing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> up in the air. I'm happy to be here. The champ is here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and this was this was an interesting one because I mean, all of your pairings. Last time you were here, you did Steven Seagal, so this could not be further, I think, from the <laughs> realm of Steven Seagal. Uh, you're always bringing on something different. So, Andrew, uh, what two films have you brought with you this week, and why did you pair these two together? 
so this week the pairing is uh, for some reason I was struck by the need to do a pairing of uh, bug films basically <laughs> uh, so we've got uh, David Cronenberg's fine example of Canadian excellence uh, the classic remake of The Fly uh, and we also have Saul Bass's only feature film 1974's Phase 4 uh, which this is this is one where I think I've only done this once before on this show, uh, but this is a bit of a gamble in that I selected a film that I had not seen yet. So because oh. I needed I needed to to pick some movies and I had like uh, you know a bunch shortlisted, and including some of them that I hadn't seen. Um, but as soon as I realized this one was like the only Soul Bass seventies sci fi movie, I went yeah come on that's got to be interesting. Yeah, yeah, and, l- and luckily, <laughs> luckily, it was a very interesting to look at movie. Yeah, <laughs> so I think I, I think after after viewing it and you know re- uh, reviewing them both together, I think actually the theme of the pairing has become uh, humans humans becoming the bug, humans being subsumed by the bug. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, hum- I mean, there's definitely like both of these films are definitely stylish, stylish uh, science fiction horror about scientists getting their insect on. But also I was taken to how they're very different visions of mankind's, I guess, sort of post human, more bug like progression. One obviously being very deeply afraid of whatever the next state is going to be and one a little bit more accepting of it. Yeah. Um, and you might be surprised which one that is, considering David Cronenberg has, you know, not always been someone to, uh, you know, uh, he's the new flesh guy, man. You know, he's not always terrified, completely terrified of uh, transformation. But I, I, I was really taken um, with this double feature. So it, it kind of surprised me that you didn't you didn't totally intend it other than obviously, you know, knowing that it bugs. had some bugs. Just in bugs. It. <laughs> yeah. But no, on an ideas level, it also works as a double feature. So, yeah, on, on an ideas level, I think it, it really works thematically as uh, mankind uh, battling the bug and losing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's absolutely true. All right. Well, uh, yeah, this is going to be a really fun double feature. So let's uh, let's jump into it here. Let's start off with uh, a big heavy hitter, one that, you know, we've been kind of dancing around and saving for a while because this is this is our eighth or ninth Cronenberg film. And somehow we haven't talked about The Fly yet. So let's do it. Let's finally do it. Let's talk about The Fly. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Right, we are talking The Fly, the 1986 American science fiction body horror film directed and co-written by one David Cronenberg, someone that, you know, everyone on this show, I would assume 
is familiar with. If not, you are a bad listener. Sorry to That's call right. anyone That's out right. who's like maybe a new listener, but we've talked You're about seven. Listener. You're a bad Canadian. Yeah. That's right. That. This is a Canadian genre film podcast. Uh, we have talked about literally seven or eight David Cronenberg films and his very specific brand of sexual and perverted body horror that reveals at once a deep uh, fear of the human body and its conditions and its specific fleshy vulnerabilities of infections and deteriorations and transformations. But also through that, a more interesting kind of fascination and uh, arousal and an inability to, uh, to look away from the body and a desire to repulse others with it and to stare at it and maybe come to some disturbing truths about it. Um, at this point in his career, because this is 1986 and we've, you know, uh, we're not going to get too deep into it, but we've, because we've covered a lot of the films I'm about to mention, but he would have done at this point um, Shivers, which was his kind of like big sort of, uh, I wouldn't call it a commercial debut because it was hugely low budget, but the first time yeah. he got government funding for a feature and it actually like turned a profit for the government and there was a huge <laughs> issue uh, about that. But that one had all the uh, sexed crazed orgy zombies that were sparked by an aphrodisiac parasite that also doubled <laughs> as a venereal disease. Um, so it was a, a, a statement, uh, an artistic statement from yes. the man, 1975, right off the bat, where dying was an act of eroticism and uh, the connection between the host body and dis disease was almost a romantic, liberating expression in a way. And then he would have also at this point done The Brood which was uh, a really hilarious film that was a response to Kramer versus Kramer being such a, a, a very simple drama about, uh, you know, a messy <laughs> divorce and breakup. He thought it was too clean. He was like, no, 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 we should have uh, the mother and the children like being literally like turned like torn apart. Um, we should put in tons of perverse body horror and make it just as nasty and cruel and disturbing as possible. And then he would have hit us with the one-two whammy of Scanners in Videodrome, which is actually one of the very first episodes we ever did on this show. Jamie and I got yeah. to see David Cronenberg's personal 35-millimeter prints within like Ooh. the first month of doing this show. And it's beautiful. You got to watch him in one case test run his ideas of um, sort of the flesh and the computers and psyches kind of all melded together in this conspiratorial thriller. And then see the sort of final conclusion of that idea where a dude deeply invested in trash and lurid content and violence and sex and exploitation. He made a movie about the effect that that has on him and <laughs> that he's having on it by kind of progressing into the future. Rapid technology increases corporatization, you know, this sort of... Uh, lack of control and unhinged psyche and what's coming next, some kind of transformation and uh, transcendence. There's something inside of all of us and the TV softcore images and snuff footage on the TV. It's going to get us at, get it out of us. Um, but what's really interesting about Videodrome and what makes such an interesting precursor to the fly, because the fly was the immediate follow up from what I understand is that Videodrome absolutely top 10 of all time 
film for me probably oh, yeah, partially it. because it's about a guy who just really loves disgusting images on tv and kind of goes down that rabbit hole it's like damn my life a movie it's the original <laughs> yeah, it's toronto like, guy you movie you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but that film despite being as tangible as cronenberg can be with the the gruesome effects work and and horror that he does it's also a lot more cerebral and kind of philosophical and surreal in a lot of ways than you would expect of the guy whose most famous film is this film, the fly. This was the first yeah. time he saw huge commercial success. And this is all kind of a long winded way of getting to, you can see why they wanted him for this in terms of what he was capable of doing as a, as a visual artist. Mm-hmm. But it is also insane to think about, you know, someone was making a commercial project and they were like, call up the video drone guy. <laughs> we, we need a we need yeah. a we need a, a, a hit on our hand we need a love story we need yeah. you know this is what this is what we need call him up and that is apparently exactly what they the did script <laughs> you know not yeah. just give him like a, a total freedom of, of vision but also wh- where the plot leads what the characters are going to do all of that they just they gave it to him it's, it's beautiful. yeah because the the original idea was just as andrew mentioned at the top of the show they wanted to remake the 1958 Fly, starring Vincent Price, which itself was an adaptation of a short story from 1957 by a man named George Langland, um, which uh, all three movies basically very loosely, or all two movies, uh, follow the basic plot of the short story, which is a scientist who creates this sort of new matter transportation device called the disintegrator slash reintegrator. And they become confident enough with the results on the experiments that they experiment on themselves, moving from one side of room to the other. But a dastardly housefly makes its way <laughs> into the machine. And uh, as a result, they create this human fly hybrid monster that then the people around them kind of have to reckon with and, and a, a, attempt to fix. And the, the original <laughs> stories have kind of different ways of doing that approach. Just thinking because making a both, big problem for everyone else. <laughs> yeah, well, and also... <laughs> One of Cronenberg's more interesting touches, which I think he actually credits to the uh, the original screenwriter who wasn't him. There was someone else who wrote it, uh, Chris Pogue, and, and he took right. over and redid a draft. And he, he gave the guy credit on the screenplay still because he said that that screenwriter actually came up with the idea of the slow transformation. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the, which was, the larva in the hospital sequence, the nightmare sequence. Uh, yes, that image as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, which are two, you know, very, very important aspects of this film. Mm -hmm. So I totally understand because the original short story and I think the um, original film, he just like immediately is like a fly monster. Like he has a giant fly for a head. Yeah, they said like the last third was going to be him just as the monster entirely without this like, you know, him kind of expressing how maybe he could become the first hybrid and get a Nobel Prize and and try to own it a little bit. It, it seemed like he <laughs> well, was just yeah, going to become a monster. That painful psychological transition that he has to yeah. make of c- realizing what's happening to him and w- having to watch it happen with not being able to stop it. Whereas mm-hmm. like in the original story, they just kind of rip the Band-Aid off. They're just kind of like, yep, you're a fly man now. Find the yep. fly so you can maybe put it back through the machine and figure all that shit out. Who knows? We'll, we'll kind of, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll figure it out from there. I mean, he's not even the original character in the short story apparently the main character is like his brother or okay. something like that oh. um and it's he and it's it like starts him with him discovering like, the 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 brother turning into the fly rather than the focus on the scientist it's, it's it's not even that it's like his sister-in-law calls him 
and says that, you know, like his brother is dead and he committed suicide with via a hydraulic press or something like that. And there's this kind of background story of the sister-in-law. So his wife is like trying to find the fly around the house to like put it back in and see if they Mm -hmm. can like reverse it or something like that. And it has, it has this dark ironic ending to it where they can't find the fly. So he kills himself. And then it turns out that like, the main character of the brother realized that he like killed a fly earlier that day. And like, it could have been the one that they were looking for, you know, like that kind of thing. But it's a really cool story and it gets into ideas of, you know, scientific risk and progress and fail frailty of the human body. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, and I, I like this idea too, of a movie about a guy who turns himself into a monster, but instead of going on a violent killing spree like uh kind of like what they do with the old universal monsters sometimes he, he just kind of gets really sad and suicidal yeah just <laughs> and like, just like rots and decays yeah yeah i would i would say it's almost like in its setup the it's almost quite stagey like it's it's really something you could see being put on as a theatrical production you know it's it's isolated yeah. to a handful of locations um that you know there's a there's a few scenes where they're outside of his uh, sort of trendy uh, abandoned warehouse lab. There's a God, few I scenes would live in that in a second. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's so <laughs> I was thinking. Yeah. Coolest man cave ever. Yeah, early in the piece when um, when Brundle and, and Veronica sort of start sleeping together and, and she leaves again, I was like, yeah, it'd be pretty cool having like a, a young, sexy scientist boyfriend who's doing cool experiments in his like mad warehouse in the industrial district but it, <laughs> it would suck if your boyfriend started turning into a fly that's yeah. a downside that's a downside to the relationship yeah, yeah. although it seems like uh, at least at first in the first few days they were having some some wild and long sex so maybe that uh yeah maybe that helped at least at, at first you know it got it's pretty a trade-off, bad you know? after that though <laughs> there's, pro, there's pros and cons but like yeah. i think um <laughs> Yeah, like there's long stretches of the movie are what I would consider to be like quite quite sort of um, theater type staging where everything's mm-hmm. everything's in one set. You know, there's pretty much just the two characters interacting with each other for mm-hmm. uh, an overwhelming majority of the movie other than a few scenes where, you know, another character comes in from the outside and even then we're sort of still maintaining the location and the isolation um, yeah. and, and, and I think that really, that really sort of helps to keep the story a dynamic between people rather than being, you know, like, like you're saying, Josh, the sort of universal thing of the old universal monster thing of something happens and then now it's spilled out into the world and somebody's chasing a monster while they rampage and they're trying to figure out how to deal with the issue. Instead, this is all so contained and it really helps in that sense to make it about the characters and their relationships with each other and how they're mm-hmm. relating to each other as as all of these changes take place. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that, unlike so many other Cronenbergs, and I think the reason that this does have so much appeal, and it was, you know, the high point of, of his success, both, at, you know, critically and financially, and, I mean, it's the only movie he ever made that even got nominated for an Oscar, and it won it. Really? You know, like, this is, without a doubt, this is the film that he is the most well-known for, and I think part of that is that the early goings of this film, especially, 
it's surprisingly like kind of warm and romantic and a little bit even optimistic at times. Like there's Mm -hmm. this, you you spend a lot of time in the joy of this budding romance and of discovery and genuine inspiration and ingenuity. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's very awkward and tender and owes a lot to the fact that just Goldblum and Gina Davis have really great chemistry together. I mean, they obviously had real life chemistry together, but they are also, you know, they sell it really well on screen. I mean, Jamie and I just on the bonus transmission talked about what was the Ben Affleck, Anna de Armos one where they were like, that was (laughs) like a real life chemistry that did not translate to the screen. And in, Mm -hmm, in here, you know, uh, they sell this connection that they have for one another, which is like, you know, integral to the ideas that are going to be expressed here. Cause it's like this very, um, you know, th- th- there's this very romantic quality that you then have to see viciously torn apart in like a disgusting Frankenstein story. And if you don't buy the connection, then the evisceration isn't going to have the kind of tragic impact that it's meant to have. And as Andrew said, too, I think a huge part of that is Cronenberg didn't lean into some of his what can be nastier tendencies. He does by the end of the film. That's yeah. for sure. But, but I think in the early going I mean, sometimes he can just be really nasty to characters, uh, <laughs> yeah. something like Shivers, well, for example, where like the char- half the characters in that movie uh, get like raped by parasite zombies, um, <laughs> you know, before you even know who they are as people. In right. this one, you can tell that, you know, it's very economically shot, as Andrew put. It's very, you know, it, 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 it spends a lot of time in this apartment. I mean, it's very if you think about it, like this opens on just the meet cute and the first date and the experiment. The first time he introduces to the experiment, it all happens in the opening, like five minutes of the film. I love like it really yeah. moves and, and it moves with these two, you know, going around each other. I love the way that he pursues her, too, because it, it does feel like this kind of um, like he's very he is nerdy, but he has a very because uh, it is Goldblum, of course, he's got a charm to him. And oh, I like that. Yeah. yeah. And I like that um, he feels like he's just he really needs to show her this. There, There is obviously a level, I think, of interest that he has in her in general. Um, but I, it makes me think that, uh, you know, he's just been in this lab by himself, isolated for so long, even before he turns into the fly. And he's just like looking for someone to show what he's been working on. And um, I just love his like eagerness to to uh, get to know her and show oh, her yeah, the dude, things he, he's working he on. He has. He has this incredible, I mean, his performance is just like unbelievable in general, but in the opening stuff, he has this smug, childlike (laughs) giddiness that is just incredibly infectious. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I I think that, yeah, that that whole opening sequence, it does such a good job of really getting his character across. And And he's so well cast for this because he has this sort of, he strikes this perfect balance for this sort of scientist, isolated scientist character where he is uh, like sort of charming and socially inept at the same time, which is, <laughs> you know, that, that, sort of, that sort of shorthand that you would have for like the scientist who is, who is extremely focused on their work and the thing that they've been doing. So hasn't talked you know, to another person in like six months. <laughs> yeah, all he can yeah, talk and, about and, is kind of like what he's been focusing on, yeah. But but also, like, a lot of the time, I think one of the things that makes people attractive to each other is being passionate about things, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's, it's being passionate about your, your interests or your hobbies or your career or whatever it is. I think a lot of the time, other people can see that passion and that interest and, and they're drawn to it. And in his case, he's so driven and passionate about his work that you can see that enthusiasm 
spilling over, you know, like you said, Jamie, he has to, he's at a point where he's going to burst. He has to share it with somebody. <laughs> but he also, like, even in that opening sequence, like you said, he's, he's also at the same time kind of showing this, this prideful, almost smug aspect of it, which in turn yeah. is something that's, that's going to kind of be his downfall in the end. Mm-hmm. In, yeah, in the same also, way that, sorry, in the same ahead. way that he couldn't, in the same way that he couldn't stop himself from going out and sharing it with somebody by his own admission before it was ready to be shared. Right. That was the same, the same impulse and the same pride and recklessness that was going to lead him to, you know, trying to trying to push the experiment further and faster as he went. Right. He like mm-hmm. he step he oversteps his own boundaries in that scene by just telling her and showing her everything. Because when she starts to say like, "Oh, I'm gonna tell people," or "or this is a great story," he's he kind of realizes, "Oh, wait, I wasn't exactly ready for the whole world to see this thing. I just wanted to impress you, <laughs> and now yeah. you know you're going to use it for your own career gain, which you know you can understand for from her perspective. But he just I, I like that he that he's kind of too eager or too excited so he so he oversteps his own boundaries because well, yeah, well, in that moment for him it goes from a personal transaction to a, a different kind of transaction that he mm-hmm. didn't realize that he was being um a part of and it's interesting too because the way that it kind of builds that you know that there is a more sort of personal quality to the things that they are talking about like i love the moment where immediately you could tell is the cronenberg touch where he uh he wants to impress her and show her how he's going to change the world because she covers science as part of her her gig for the magazine and she's like all you fucking scientists say that you know you're changing the world and he's like yeah well they're lying i got the real deal and he shows her this um this teleportation device that he has created and he shows it to her by asking for a personal object something mm. that is uniquely you that you mm. know that you would be impressed to see uh, recreated by a machine and we get to a full 30 second shot of her <laughs> taking her leg stocking off and giving it to him. And you get the full sex and science thing as Jeff Golden's like, oh, God damn, she's taking yeah, her he leg is exposed. Like, it's nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take, takes a little moment to appreciate it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, yeah. I, I definitely. Sort but then of he, tra- he transports it from one side of the room to the other one. And then her eyes light up and you're like, yeah. you know, this is this is a you know, there's there is a romantic push and pull connected to him showing off this project. But then obviously she's a journalist who writes for a science magazine. So she's like, yeah, I need to write about this. Mm-hmm. He's like, wait. No, I wanted to show you, but not like that. Um, <laughs> Do her I, boss, I, her boss. Oh my God, St- Stathis Borans, played by John Getz, who we actually recently talked about because we did the Coen Brothers Blood Simple, right? Um, right. Where he's he's the lead with um, McDormand in that, and he is, uh, yeah, he can just he can play scummy well. Now, um, well, so I I had this on. Um, I was watching this, and my my wife was in the room as well, and. Um, uh, like one of the things we both sort of noted because we've been we've been watching like movies uh, from our own childhoods with our kids lately. You mm-hmm. know, um, one of my kids who's a bit older uh, likes horror movies and we've sort of been making our way through through different things together, the two of us. And but then we've also been sort of looking to kind of branch out with the two of them beyond just like, you know, your Disney animated movies and, and all that sort of stuff. Right. So we've, we've also been watching things from the nineties and recently we have watched both, uh, don't, 
Don't Tell Mum the Babysitter's Dead. Um, and, oh, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, I haven't either. And I think um, it's, it's extremely 90s uh, story. <laughs> uh, Christina Applegate. Uh, good good kind of 90s alternative soundtrack, all that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> but but in that movie, um, she, like Christina Applegate plays like a, a, a teenager... The, their single mother goes away overseas to Australia for like two months for a holiday. Very normal. Um, hires an elderly babysitter to look after her five kids um, who immediately turns out to be uh, both a real bitch and then <laughs> just dies. Uh, so they like pop her in a trunk, ditch her on a doorstep somewhere and then they've got the whole summer to themselves. <laughs> um, she accidentally stumbles into a job at like a, a fashion house or something like that. And there is a, an older male character there who's a sleaze. And it is, lo and behold, John Getz. And other people <laughs> of, like people, people of my sort of age would also be familiar with him as the, um, as like one of the, the, the sort of bad guy in Curly Sue. Uh, the, okay. what's his name? Breakfast Club guy, the director. I've lost it. Oh, oh uh, uh, Hughes. Yeah. 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 John Hughes. Yeah. John Hughes movie. So, um, and in both of those, he's very much playing the same thing. You know, he's got that, he's got that same quality as like William Atherton or Christopher McDonald, where he's like extremely adept at playing a smug prick. <laughs> um, but in this role, I'm, I'm, re I was really kind of struck by in the same way that I think Cronenberg does a really good job of humanizing both the scientist and the journalist characters and really sort of honing in on their, their vulnerabilities in their affections for each other. Like those are the things that make them do things to impress each other and stay when things are getting fucked up, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And, and John gets a status in this. This is the role for me where I've, I've seen him in a bunch of things and often he's playing that, that, prickish stereotype and in this role he does have that but he also he's quite a human character to me as well like you can see that he has a really genuine concern and care for veronica mm -hmm. and that at least a part of his personality is this is this bluster that he puts on for her like you can see that a bunch of the way he behaves is just kind of it's it's kind of the uh you know pulling a girl's uh ponytail in the playground kind of <laughs> yeah kind of but he never lost it because he does yeah, yeah have this like um this like uh it, it, it's like what the, the kind of confidence that you would get from a 19 or 20 year old guy you know um and he, and he says yeah. like a lot of these strange lines um with 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 like smugness and as if he is being funny maybe like the one where he looks at Gina and he's like, uh, uh, what about sex? Just, you know, just straight yeah. stress relieving sex. And then he puts a cigar in his mouth and is that still on the table. Yeah. 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 But, like, well, but, but it seems that's, like an that's act the perfect, that's the perfect example though, because yeah. yeah, she, she says, Oh, you're disgusting and closes the door and leaves. And he just mm -hmm. sort of, and he has this kind of wistful look on his face and says, well, I wouldn't want to disappoint you. You know, like he's kind of saying, well, that's that's our thing. That's our that's our dynamic, you know, mm -hmm. and with a lot of movies from the 80s, uh, I think that this this character, this um, this kind of trope 
is is like the preppy guy who is just like, I want to break you up because I don't like him because he's not me or because <laughs> I want I want you or whatever, you know, like the same for the same for those sort of William Atherton characters where he's always just kind of like, you know, uh, when he when William Atherton plays like the, the professor in um, Real Genius where it's it's solely just kind of jealousy and nastiness that motivates a lot of stuff whereas yeah. in this i think i think you can really see that um that stathis while he does have that kind of he he does love veronica and and wishes that they were kind of still together in it well yeah when when, yeah. when things start to get a little bit more severe he definitely has moments where you know he could just be like yeah i'm out of here this is too much work for me yeah and he is and willing he does, to risk his life at a certain point um, and, yeah. and I think but, but the, in, in but the early it goings, it's it's very funny to watch their relationship because they've clearly, you know, him and Veronica have clearly, you know, been a thing before. But, you know, she is now sort of ha she had this meet cute with um, with Jeff Goldblum's character and is kind of, you know, interested in, in exploring that. But she can't like, you know, she kind of he kind of just works as this casual annoyance for the film when he pops up like that's his role <laughs> right. is to pop up and be like yeah this guy's machine sounds like bullshit uh tell him i have an assistant that's out outlived her usefulness if he wants to make like them disappear for me um and he also like the the one that's that strikes me is the scene where she goes home to her apartment and finds yeah, him just like showering gonna, in yeah. her apartment like while she's out it shows she's that like, he's I fully confident in that and that he kind of like thinks he still owns the space a little bit yeah he's he, he's like oh you didn't change the locks on me that's because subconsciously i think you want me to move back in and <laughs> right. she's just like sub she's like subconsciously i'm just messy and lazy <laughs> <laughs> right i think um, it's also um i th i think it, they, th like their their dynamic sort of gets explained at a point when when Brundle is is you know feeling a bit a bit jealous or a bit uh, kind of you know he he sort of gets the vibe that there's something between them mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. Veronica's going to be sort of taken away from him and she explains their relationship in what is uh really like a a very sort of realistic thing that happens a lot and I'm sure continues to happen, which is that she explains that, you know, she was a student at university and he was a professor and they got into a relationship and he got her started in journalism. And then over time he has wound up being her editor at this publication. So, right. so there's like a power dynamic there. Yeah. A power dynamic. And I guess also having that kind of historical relationship that started off in an exploited power dynamic mm -hmm. and turned into something where I guess the two of them were sort of, uh, mutually benefiting from the relationship, but in a right. way where, where it's crossing a lot of lines and boundaries between personal and professional and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. exploitation and all that kind of thing. So which she's doing for round two, technically by mixing the personal and professional with, you know, the fact that she is, you know, sexually interested with in, the, in, stuff. In, in the subject yeah. of, you know, this story that she is planning on and, writing. Cause gold, cause Goldblum actually proposes to her, like, don't write a magazine article like i'll give you full access and like you can write a book about this thing yeah he like, am, please and um, he's like just wait until i can do a living creature and then we can start talking about releasing this information and all that yeah well and and to um to cronenberg's credit as well i feel like despite the nature of of both of these relationships 
uh, Veronica is never sort of painted as or described as or accused of being somebody who like is sleeping her way to the top or, or right. you know, yeah. sleeping with people to get ahead or anything like that. These are just complicated human relationships that she's having. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. No, it, 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 it's very mature um, in terms of, you know, it's romantic qualities um, for sure, which is well, which is really important because like, again, like that is what when when the messiness and the flaws start to arise in that and then get taken to these fleshier extremes like that's, that's what makes that's you feel anchor. this film. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, like the thing, that's what that's what makes the uh, more genre B movie qualities of this like genuinely emotive um, and expressive. And and that was the thing that actually made me want to watch this movie again recently was um, was seeing a clip from a 1986 interview with Cronenberg. It was like a lifetime interview on the on the press tour, and it's weird. It looks like um, it looks like you know. Uh, I don't know. It, it looks like an Oprah interview in the eighties. You know, it's all kind of mm. soft focus and fuzzy and warmly lit and everything for for Cronenberg <laughs> right, to right. talk about this sort of stuff. And and here's a here's a quote from him during that interview. He says, "It is a horror film. It's also a romance. It's a love story. It's very emotional. It's very passionate. It's not a gore fest. It's not a slasher movie. It's also very funny. Not in a sense of parody or camp, but it's an ironic and darkly humorous film. I think." Gore is perhaps the most spectacular aspect of it, but it's certainly not all there is in the movie. And yeah, yeah. I think that, uh, I, I think that, yeah, he really, he really sort of makes it clear what his intentions are. And I think it, it really does do a fantastic job of kind of anchoring the movie. Cause I, I remember a, um, it's a standup comedian and doing a bit and I cannot remember who it is. Uh, but they're talk they were talking about like um it was a whole whole routine about uh like uh things that white people stay around for in horror movies where black <laughs> people would have already left you know um, <laughs> right like as soon as as soon as the house said get out in poltergeist you'd be like all right pack, pack, pack it up the things I'm all good and uh and if it is from the same bit that I'm remembering this person's talking about you know she's she's still she's still hanging with this guy uh when his ear falls off and then she hugs him <laughs> on the side that his ear fell off. Yeah. As he's and, like um, throwing up mucus and stuff too yeah. on the shirt. And then when they, you know, when they hug, you have to assume that all of that got on her clothes and her skin and everything else. So there is definitely yeah. a, a love and a comfort with the, with well, them. And that's, what's amazing is like, well, you know, we, we, we should get into, you know, like how we, we get to that sequence in particular, but like, yeah, that is an example of why this film is as amazing as it is, because that is such a, you know, a texturally repulsive moment where you just yeah. want to, you want to vomit. You're looking at, it, you're like, why? And, and it, like, that's a normal response to be like, yeah, are you really going to hug that? Do you see yeah. it? Do you feel it? Do you smell that? Like, it's disgusting. And this is after but at the same time, him, like, lose teeth and he squirts his finger with pus and stuff like this is his like, fingernails are popping off like seen pogs. a lot of things here yeah. and then and then you know she's seeing him in, in, in even but it's a moment state. of pure compassion yes right exactly. it's a moment where he is begging for help and she can still see the man that she was attracted to inside the most disgusting form and that I feel you like could possibly she, lay your eye on. The only thing that on. she could do at that point is hug him. Like she feels helpless, just as helpless as he does in that scene, seeing him deteriorate like that. Like there's nothing she can do. He says, help me, but 
Like, <laughs> what if, what is she going to come up with? You know, so yeah, and and and, and I, I love just how you know again, like we've we've anchored it with the sort of like adult romantic relationships that are taking place, but then he's also interspersed some of that gruesome detail in the early scenes too, counteracting that a little bit. Like you'll have amazing scene of Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum with the same hair wearing the amazing 80s clothes, oh, yeah. having like the sweatiest sex on his pullout couch in his <laughs> warehouse lab apartment all in one. Beautiful, like moody lighting to it. And then, you know, then you'll have a scene of him putting his monkey through the teleporter and it coming out the other side inside out, like begging for death. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, then, and, then, and then he'll do the hand gesture and be like, cheeseburger. Cheeseburger time, which is one of my favorite Jeff yep. Goldblum isms just in his entire word. career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cheeseburger. He's so good at it. He is such uh, I guess we already covered it, but yeah, I love him just being a uh, very flirtatious nerd. He's very good at it. Very charming. Yeah. Um, but, then, but, but then, but then you throw in elements like during the sex scene too, of her being like, you know, trying to help him with his machine because his machine isn't working. That's what is the the issue is that, you know, he's, he's transported stockings. He's transported in, inanimate objects. It's working great. This is an amazing discovery, but he puts a monkey in it. It comes in inside out. There's something magical and poetic about skin and flesh and living things that he can't replicate with his cold computer. And through yeah. his relationship with her, he cracks the code because he mm, needs, she, she you know, becomes he is, his muse, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and it's very interesting, like watching that happen of naturally these two characters are coming together and then you get her talking about like, you know, let me kiss your, your, your wound better because you, you know, a chip like digs into his back. And then she starts talking about, I just want to like eat you up and the flesh just, it makes you go crazy. It's why they talk about pinching baby cheeks. And then as a result, that is what has him actually start realize that his computer is not, you know, it's it's trying to translate flesh, but it's not actually reproducing, you know, the kind of amazing thing about it, the human touch about it. In but, my, um, he hasn't in my notes, it in. Uh, in my notes here, uh, I wrote something early on which proved to be quite wrong. Uh, I wrote, "Oh, this is the most Cronenberg line in the film." So he's standing around, um, you know, after after the the monkey implosion. Yeah. And actually, just very briefly, I'll say when when we're first sort of shown the telepods, um, I think that the I think the production design on them is simultaneously very Cronenberg. Like if you've oh, if yeah. you've seen things like Videodrome, there's there's a lot of similarity in the sorts of um, uh, the the how like metal is used in design. And yeah. I also yeah uh, yeah apparently it's based on the engine of his motorcycle at the time. He just thought it was like the coolest looking thing. <laughs> oh, there you go. And but I also find um, the the telepods and a few things later on in the movie to be quite evocative of like that H.R. Geiger sort of art style. Yeah, which which in turn is obviously you know very really. Um, evokes that sort of merging of machine and flesh and and changing of bodies you know so so mm -hmm. he's he's accidentally inverted a monkey and he's standing around in his frustration afterwards and she puts the camera on him and says what's going on you know tell me talk through it and that's that's the very beginning yeah, people are going to want to know who the brilliant man who won a nobel prize like what he's thinking in this moment you know of failure yeah, and, this <laughs> and, moment and he's is like i'm thinking fuck, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> fuck. 
but um, but but this is this is like the first moment where I think again we have this this kind of blurring of the boundaries where they're supposed to be, you know, their relationship is supposed to be she's meant to be documenting it and he's meant to be you know having his achievements, but instead they've immediately fallen into a romantic relationship. And her role as the person who's documenting it starts to get blurred with someone who's participating in it because yeah. she starts to pr- prompt him and help him think through things. And he says during this sequence, um, she's like, well, what's wrong? You know, why isn't the, the computer doing this thing? And he says, computers are dumb. They only know what you tell them. I must not know about the flesh myself. I'm going to have yeah. to learn. And I was like, oh, that's the most Cronenberg shit. Oh, and, absolutely. Uh, and it turned out, it turned out that there's there's so so many more direct references. <laughs> yeah, there, there's to, a big to old monologue that he gets where uh, where what, what he's talking about Go the deep plasma into the cool. core, yeah, or something. Yeah. So, so yeah, after after they've after they've had sex, uh, she says to him, she says to him, you know, I want to eat you up. That's why old ladies pinch babies' cheeks. It's the flesh. It makes you go crazy. And that gives yeah. him his little his That's little the magic touch inspiration. And he stands up and he says, the flesh, it should make the computer go crazy like the old ladies. I haven't yeah. taught the flesh to make the computer go crazy. So I'm going to start teaching it now. Yeah, <laughs> he must. He must teach the machine the nature of the flesh. Gets on yeah. his analog technology <laughs> and just starts hammering <laughs> it all in. I love it. That's putting punch yeah. cards in, you know, <laughs> and, he, yeah. and I, I love the big baboon that they got. Oh yeah! Ama- amazing, ama- I mean, it, all three of them have incredible hair, uh, both leads yeah. and the monkey. <laughs> and it adds to that. Like we were talking about how there is some some like comedy aspects to it, and it is kind of inherently funny to watch like a naked gold uh, Goldblum, you know, grab onto a baboon and hold him uh, just lovingly. Um, but there is a lot of meaning to that where it's like, you know, it's seeing the baboon go through the teleportation and then he's feeling a connection with this animal, this, this living thing Mm -hmm. that, you know, is, is progressing his scientific experiment. Um, but, but I do love that it's still inherently funny to watch a naked gold bloom hold a monkey. (laughs) And say say to him, I'm sorry, I killed your brother. (laughs) Yeah, 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 for real. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in the most gruesome yeah. way possible. And so it is at that point where uh, where um, Veronica receives so, so so she's she's agreed to the premise. She's going to she's going to be really involved and document this whole thing. She's going to write the book, get the exclusive, be the journalist who documented the greatest scientific breakthrough of all time. As he yeah, says, and, and, you know, and, and, and her makes... boss and editor is kind of going stalker mode. He's a little bit jealous of <laughs> this. Uh... Be- because again, they themselves have this complicated relationship where he sent her to the party to, you know, find something out. And she did find something out, turned out to be huge. But his, his concern isn't that she might be keeping a great story to herself. The concern is that he might be losing her. So, right. you know, I'm, on, I'm finally onto something that's huge. And, his uh, cock <laughs> <laughs> that's a classic what a line <laughs> and and in order to in order to kind of exercise some control over her to rein her in he has uh, sent to her at his apartment total dick move he has uh, sent to her a mocked up uh, magazine cover indicating that he's going to go ahead and publish this story about teleportation uh, before they're ready to do, because he, I presume that he knows that that will uh, torpedo her own efforts on the story. Yeah. Mm. 
and and drive a wedge between her and Seth, which it does because she won't tell him Why, about what's going him. on. She, you know, the whole, oh, yeah. the whole thing is and obviously immediately upset her. in. Th- this is one of the things I realized on rewatch too that I think was really special about it is that you know his his reasoning his psychological reasoning behind being like it's time to experiment on myself is not like something that's considered or scientific it's literally he gets drunk and starts ranting about how jealous he is of this current sort of like possible love triangle that he's found himself and he's like she's gonna go see her boyfriend so she yeah, yeah she she has an emotional reaction which is you know the 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 boss that i have had this inappropriate power dynamic with is once again trying to exercise power over me and it's made her very uncomfortable and something that she says in that scene strikes me as well which is like we said they sort of they meet out in the real world and then pretty much immediately they are like sequestered away into his world you know Mm -hmm. um and and like we said there's only a couple of scenes where they they go out for cheeseburger together and um you know he goes out to a to a bar later but other than that pretty much everything is self-contained in in this location and so she's been here with him you know fucking and documenting things and when when she gets this and she realizes i'm gonna have to go and deal with this problem now and she says to him um you know i i still have the residue of another life and i gotta scrape it off my shoe and before i can move (laughs) on you know, so she's she's almost kind of saying like, you know, I'm I'm all the way in with you here. Yeah, I'm I'm all the way committed to this thing, but I need to go and like cut ties with with other parts of my life. Uh, oh yeah, before and this we can is also on. before that too. I think she says something like she suggests them going on a vacation together, and it's Goldblum's first moment of really realizing that what is happening here is a budding romance. Um, yeah, he was obviously aware subconsciously, but it, it seems like a shock to him that she's actually that deep in it and interested in him. Yeah, and and the tables turn really quickly though because mm-hmm. she's the one proposing this to him, which is to him, you know, exciting and new and everything. And then she sees the magazine cover and goes, "Fuck, you know, I gotta, yeah. I gotta sort this I, thing." I gotta out. go deal with something real quick. And and this in turn kind of, uh, you know, she she. To, to Seth, she would have seemed a bit cold. He sort of said, oh, I need to go immediately leave and deal with this thing. And and he's like, oh, what about the vacation? What about the vacation? And she says to him, oh, you know, don't rush it. So she's very quickly, from his perspective, done a 180 from proposing this stuff and saying, this is a romance and we're in love, to saying, oh, you know, just back off for a second while I sort out this stuff. So so it's... You so can naturally, see, you have to double down on the work, Right. Yeah, yeah, and but it, but again, I think it's a it's a great illustration of you have these these really messy human relationships between the three characters, where there's the overlapping between you know Seth's uh, Seth's like scientific ambitions with his mm-hmm. with his relationship with her, and then her journalistic ambitions overlapped with her relationship with Seth and also her relationship with Stathis and also her professional relationship with Stathis. So they all have all of these kind of various push and pulls at the same time. And those mm-hmm. are the things that add the extra, the extra pressure that boils over for him. You know, he's alone. He's meant to be celebrating a successful non-inverted monkey teleportation. Yeah, that's great. Um, 
and and instead, you know, he's alone drinking champagne and talking to his monkey. And <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 he realizes he goes, you know, I I guess it's kind of cruel that I keep putting the monkeys through. You know, I sh- shouldn't do anything. Uh, I wouldn't make you do anything that the captain wouldn't also do. Right. So right. he's like, now is the time. He's a little bit drunk. He's a little bit upset. You know, it's like it's time to go through the machine and the music swells. He activates it. The fog comes up and, you know, the monkey is reaching with his hand through through at him. There's a little bit of, you know, a little oh, bit of on. sweetness before that, there. Before that point, there is a, a harbinger of doom, which is he's chatting away to yes. the monkey about what the general would do. And the monkey has a very irritated look on its face as it swats at a fly that is hovering yeah, around. A fly is buzzing around the room. <laughs> yeah. Just I casually. was just like, oh, as soon <laughs> as that good. happened, I was like, there he is. There's the fly. <laughs> <laughs> it's the fly. The lead. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love that big um, kind of like spinning pan that it does too to reveal that the fly is like in there with him sitting on the yeah. little uh, in, in the little glass window as as he comes through. And, and as he comes out, um, it's really interesting, too. I again, I, I think it was the right call on, um, you know, on the writing part that both Cronenberg and his co-writer here, they went. It's so uninteresting to have this guy just pop out the other side and he is a fly man monster. <laughs> yeah. It just it you know, there's 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 not, you know, we want something a little bit more disturbing and perverse than that. There's and no what sense is of more discovery disturbing? or losing yourself if you do that, you know, and that's really the crux of this whole thing. Yeah. Well, no, we was, also was, we also get the aspect there where um the audience has seen the fly. We've seen yes. the fly, but right. there's you know, there's there's a few opportunities. It almost feels like the monkey knows about the fly. But uh, <laughs> the monkey could have warned him, but he was upset about his brother. But yeah, then then there's that. So so you know there were just those little chances in there for him to notice that something's happening. But presumably his senses are dulled by his hurt feelings and his champagne consumption, and <laughs> and he hops in there. He doesn't see the fly, and when he steps out, the framing of that shot when he steps out of the machine. Oh, it's huge. Uh, yeah. Naked with the mist and everything. Glistening I a, chest. <laughs> I got a real, uh, yeah, I got a real um, Frankenstein, you know, standing mm-hmm. up and coming forward for the first time. Real kind yeah. of, mm-hmm. it's it's interesting that it is just him, but that's the Except point where they're, reve- where they're revealing the monster, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, the audience knows. I that also this love the, the scene that immediately follows him coming out where he kind of like wakes he she she comes home and and you know they kind of talk through what it was that that happened earlier and he says that he went through the machine because he was drunk and he was upset and you know he kind of wished that she was there but he he also was still thoughtful and thought of her and still taped it for her he's like you know i still you know you still got your story you know i i turned the camera on when i did it they're very understanding of each other which is mm-hmm. a big thing in that scene, I think, because I you're ex- almost expecting the big fight or something, and they separate. But th- there's just an, a growing understanding that they've had, and you yeah, know, th- that would that would be what a, a one of those sort of like overly convenient screenplays when they're like, yeah, right. we need them to fight here, we need them to get back together here. It's like, no, 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 like you totally buy into these. Movie. <laughs> you totally buy into these feelings that they have in this moment, and I love how physically expressed they are when he wakes up in the middle of the night. And he just starts realizing that his body is just, it's a little bit stronger. It's a little bit more agile. He starts doing gymnast maneuver workouts. Oh, I love and his, that you know, sequence. He, the, oh my God. And it, 
And it's two minutes of like it's her long. waking up, hearing him, you know, d- heavy breathing, hearing him spin around the poles that he's doing. He catches the doing these amazing too. things. He's like, she's like, since when did the nerdy guy that I've been staying with physically capable of like doing this stuff? And she's so stuff. <laughs> yeah, she's she's so in awe of what he's capable of doing physically and obviously so you know uh, romantically uh, involved with that as well right and she just kind of sits there and watches him and is like wow this guy <laughs> this I, guy uh, you know <laughs> yeah I, th- I think they like Cronenberg does such a great job over this segment of the movie where you know the audience knows that he's been spliced with the fly he doesn't know and all all of this is starting to be revealed to these two characters over time as both there are like changes to his body that are obvious to him and he receives as as overwhelmingly positive yeah there's strength um, at first yeah and and then other signs start to come through that she's seeing and he he's basically blinded himself too because he's he's so enthusiastic about what he sees as as this new you know, power and vigor and verve that it's given to him. He he's he starts, you know, making claims to her that uh, traveling through the teleporter has, has purged him and cleansed him, and he starts becoming like you know evangelical he's more about human about. Than about ever. <laughs> yeah, he, he starts he starts basically sort of um, evangelizing about about the the power of the the teleportation and how it's transforming mm. his flesh and everything to his mind in a purely positive way. But he's he's like frantic about it, you know? He's, yeah. I love how Goldblum's performance progresses because yeah. yeah, obviously there's the makeup quality, but even just the, how much more animated his performance gets, the way that his eyes dart and the yeah. way that he does these kind of sudden primal physical movements and like gets intense manic. twitching at a certain point. Like yeah. there's that whole sequence in the restaurant where he's just talking about his experiment and how he wants to progress the world, but he's doing it at a hundred miles an hour. She can't even keep up with him. She's, she's actually, I think it's the first time that she recognizes a change that she does not like and is not comfortable with. Um, and yeah. then it just proceeds yeah. from there. I, I think I think they do such a good job um, through this whole sequence of the the two characters being like mirrors for each other, um, or or just seeing seeing the same events through two different perspectives, and how how like it, it reflects back through each character and their emotions, because you have that sort of sequence where. He's realizing, you know, that he's that he's stronger than he was before. He he has the the natural agility of a fly. Um, <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> the proportionate <laughs> the proportionate gymnastic ability of a fly. Um, That's and, what I'm always imagining. I'm always imagining them <laughs> spinning around. Yeah, yeah. peak performance. Um, and and so you know he he starts to sort of realize that he has, but also he's looking sickly too, which is interesting. Like his performance is getting more confident and more like it's animating some of his more smug qualities that we saw in him, but he looks Um, diseased, but his, yeah, his, his face is like splotchier and he's growing these strange hairs and the, obviously the, the makeup work by, um, Chris Chris Wallace here, so who did the creature effects on uh, E.T., Return of the Jedi, and Gremlins. 
um, it, it's amazing. The, 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 the kind of like rash like discolorations that they do for him, the, the sores and everything like, and it's, it's just very interesting because it's not the kind of like you would associate that imagery with a performance that's not as strong and crazy and bug eyed and animated as he's going in these moments. And it, yeah, it creates this, you know, weird thing where she is watching this thing that she, this person that she has fallen in love with for all of these unique qualities. And she can still see the qualities there, but they are being compounded and, you know, poisoned by something. And she, it takes her a little while to put her fingers on it. It It takes a little while for everyone to put their finger on it. And I think that that slow, gradual transformation is what makes this more disturbing to watch that they they have to sit there and go, you know, to the very last second she can see Jeff Goldblum in there. Yeah. Um, And even when he's at like 99% fly, I mean, it even ends and we'll get to it, but it even ends with, uh, clearly he's inside. Seth is inside that body. Um, and even until he tries to get her into the, the, the pod to create the ultimate family that's one person together, you know, like the gold bloom is still there. Seth is still there rather. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, because, because she's, she's too afraid to get in because she can notice that something's wrong. Something's yeah. changed about the way that he behaves. There's something wrong, but he is furious at this idea. She's, she's not as committed to the change, <laughs> to right. the cause to the as progress. he is. You're afraid, you're afraid to be destroyed and, and, and remade it. He says right, to yeah. her, uh, he says to her, you're just, you're just stuck on society's straight line of the flesh. I'm talking about <laughs> penetration beyond the veil of the flesh. I <laughs> think, yeah. um, yeah, I think like, uh, yeah, it's, it, again, it's really interesting that, you know, we don't just say, oh, he's through the teleporter and he's a monster now and he's doing a rampage. He's going to go on a killing spree. In, instead, <laughs> instead we really see this kind of, uh, these, these, ups and downs and like uh, denial and acceptance as as his transformation goes on because he goes from feeling extremely energized and and feeling really great and everything and then he starts to exhibit these signs where he's like growing some big thick piano wire hairs out of his scratches in his back and he starts to grow them out of his face and his skin starting to look you know mottled and and uh and pallid and everything but he's, he's vomiting up acid in order to eat now his, well, his I mean, ears like, b- and body parts he... are falling off to what he's he's calling the um the the brundle museum he's like do you want to <laughs> do you want to see what i have inside the brundle museum she's like please do not show me your you know yeah but like but like <laughs> before he, but, yeah, but before yeah. he gets to that point though he's still very enthused about the idea of of transporting yourself in order to to remake and rejuvenate the flesh mm-hmm. and you know and he's pressing Veronica to do it he's trying to he's trying to drag her over and shove her in there and say you know you'll feel great too you should do it you should do it and she's like I am scared like something obviously has happened to you look at your skin and everything he's in complete you, denial look, look, about you, you, it she, she's like you smell bad like have you noticed yeah. that you smell bad <laughs> and he and he because he, he feels so good that he's just refusing to accept any of this you know and he kicks her out and he goes out and he finds himself a finds himself a girl at the bar he has an extremely uh Cronenberg sequence in which he saunters into a bar sees these two guys arm wrestling and he says maybe I ought to get myself involved you know to win the favor of this um this uh this barfly lady <laughs> oh and, <laughs> and 
And so he arm wrestles <laughs> this guy and we can sort of see in this close up of the hand that it almost looks like he's he's like exuding some some acidic sort of substance from his hand as they're squeezing their hands together. And then with one swift movement, he snaps the dude's arm in half with a big bone coming out of the skin. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's shrieking. It's a it's a very, very, very um it's an extremely Cronenberg uh, close up held on the big bone sticking out of the arm. Oh yeah. And he drags this girl back to his place for more of his vigorous sex because Veronica basically uh, was like, you know, 14 hours of sex straight is enough for me. I need a little break. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and he drags this girl back and again with her, he's saying, no, you need to go through too. You need to go through. Yeah, you're, you, it'll, it'll make you feel sexy. She's like, I already feel sexy. So, <laughs> so Veronica, Veronica comes back just in time to utter the immortal horror movie phrase. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, at this point, Seth throws everybody out. I don't need any of you anymore. I got it all under control. Goes into yeah. the bathroom, notices Even though, these- again, he, he his body is, like, partially falling apart. His apartment is like a pigsty, you know. Well, like, it's only at this point that we get, that we get a, a, a sort of demarcation in the timeline because they haven't really, they don't really communicate to us in the movie how much time is passing here. I kind of mm-hmm. get the sense that all of this has happened in the space of, say, two or three days from when he first transports himself. Um, yeah. Like, and the, then, yeah. They have, a few, they have a few nights of, like, lots of fucking, him getting more <laughs> and more frantic and everything, and starting to show these signs on his skin and of everything. His, of, of his nails and his fingers. Yeah, and, and then, then, he tosses, to then he tosses everyone out, and he's all by himself, and he goes and looks at himself in the mirror, and he, and he sees what Veronica could see. And he sees that his skin is fucked and he sees that there's, there's hairs coming out of his face that his um, electric trimmer can't cut. You know, they're too yeah. thick and they're too wiry. And I, th- I think at this... No, that's right. Because Veronica had come back to tell him, I cut some of those fucked up hairs off your back and I had a friend look at them, the scientist. And they, they, they weren't human. They're yeah. not yeah. human and hair. He, he thinks they're insect think. hairs. Something happened and he's like, shut up, get out. And, and then he goes and looks at himself and he while, realizes while pacing around and like I, my favorite aspect is his his sugar craving, which is always just casually involved in the scene. Like it's yeah, never like, like Fruit Loops really remarked Crunch upon entirely. <laughs> yeah, but like the, he, he's pacing and angry and yelling at her while just devouring a chocolate bar like disgustingly. <laughs> and um, and so it's That's only great. at this point when he goes into the bathroom and he and he can see what Veronica sees. And he's biting at his fingernail and suddenly all of his fingernails are coming out and he's shooting pus all over the mirror and he oh can't God. cut his he the, can't the cut effects his facial work hair. is so tactile it's and disgusting. so physical so and ugly. And then, oh my God. And then this is the only point in the film where we feel like we get a demarcation in the timeline. We've basically had the two of them meet. They have a whirlwind romance. Um, you know, they have a they have not even a fight, but it prompts him to put himself through the teleporter. They have a few days or a few nights of, of him starting to look like something's wrong. He's thrown Veronica out and then he realizes what's happening. And he has the realization of someone who's just been told that they have like stage four cancer, you know, mm-hmm. he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's just like, Oh no, I've, I realized that something's gone terribly wrong. And so then we yeah. get, we get some kind of gap in the timeline and 
when Veronica comes back again to see him, this is when he's like, you know, 80% of the way to fly. This is when he's puking on things and digesting them and he's lost all his hair and he's talking about how his teeth are basically useless now. And he seems to have, mm-hmm. you know, he's walking around with walking sticks and he seems to have basically accepted that, that his fate is to just decompose into a fly and die. But as he gets more flyish, he starts to almost kind of go, well, is, is there an alternative? And he starts asking his computer some questions, you know, about, well, how do we solve the problem of there being too much fly in Brundle? And the computer says, oh, throw another pure human in there and take the ratio down, you know? <laughs> and this is, this is what f- kind of catapults him on his final, uh, his final last-ditch effort to save himself by pulling someone else into the telepod with him. Yeah, well, and I, I like how much time it has a sit in this section of the film where he just is like this walking, vomiting tumor, essentially. Um, because it obviously it, it gets to this sort of, you know, Cronenberg aspect of, you know, he's very uh, terrified of the body deteriorating and the aging process and death. And you throw in a little bit of, you know, like the, you know, the a lot of people read kind of like the AIDS crisis into a little bit, too. And with this idea of it possibly the, the fears of it spreading through infection as well. Both of them are actually afraid of that. Like he's afraid of spreading it to her. She at one point is very terrified of this idea that she had sex with him and got pregnant and that she has these psychotic dreams of giving birth to a, a giant sort of like maggot parasite looking thing that the doctors literally deliver in the vision covered in blood and everything and like Cronenberg that. Shoots, that's that's Cronenberg, that, like right? it's going to be, uh, yeah. like it's going to be part of the plot too. Like he, he kind of sinks into that hospital sequence for a little bit before he reveals the big, uh, fly larva or whatever it's called. So I, I really like yeah, that well, he sinks into that. So, so he, he does these gross out moments of just extreme disgusting horror. And then also, you know, again, by making this transition so slow and so psychological that, you know, we spend so much time with Goldblum still performing inside this makeup. I mean, I think they had to do like six stages of yeah. makeup effects and creature work in order to make this work. Mm. But he stays performing as an actor and being a motive for a lot longer of this film than you would anticipate. And a huge part of that is that one, what Andrew was pointing out that, you know, he starts to try and wonder, is there a new kind of reality I could form like this? But then also you get to see her, Gina Davis is really painful reactions to watching someone she loves deteriorate right before her eyes. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's a real time, real time terminal illness experience. And, but like his body parts are falling apart and he's like begging her for help and she's hugging him. That's why it's the most, I think that that moment where she hugs him despite his disgusting form is like just one of the most moving gestures in the film because everything about the way that it's textured and the way that it's looked, it looks intentionally is like you want to recoil, you want to back away, you want to just blow the, you know, lock the door, blow this up, get it over with. And she instead is there trying to, you know, do something about it, even though she's, you know, she's watching him vomit up corrosive enzyme and liquefying his food and sucking it back up. I love the shot of uh, the boss uh, Stathis or whatever, watching the tape that she shot yeah, of what yeah. is what the new form Brundlefly. Yeah. He's like, Oh my God, 
like just incredible uh, just, footage. You can't he can't look away from it, but it's disgusting. And every time she goes, <laughs> Cronenberg back, in a nutshell, he's just ten times worse. So that like there's a real emotional weight there where where every time she returns to that apartment she knows that she's not going to even see the version of him that she saw previously let alone nope. who she met his at teeth the party. are falling out yeah artifacts of a bygone era he calls them as he's disintegrating he's he's constantly like licking and twitching and yeah. and, and then <laughs> as it just, goes convincing himself that this is actually a a very progressive move for humanity and that he could be the first you know hybrid bug human politician and and bring the species She's together and, and just some absolutely wild shit. But he's trying to kind of understand his new identity and be like, well, what could I bring to this world? Because he doesn't quite know yet where how far that deterioration is going to go. Well, yeah, because he's, he's confronting her with the knowledge that, you know, you've never heard of insect politicians because, you know, they they don't have them. They're completely right. brutal. They have no compassion, no compromise. You can't trust them. And he'd like to be one. But he delivers probably the line of the film. Um, I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man, but the dream is over and the insect is awake. Oh, man. And he is essentially saying that the insect form of him is winning, that he yeah. he is being exited from his body and his, you know, sort of cold decision making, which could be to hurt her, is basically imminent if she doesn't leave and and she needs to um, leave. And I'll, I'll it's just you it's the most stay. perverse like breakup scene that you've ever seen in a movie of like a fly man saying, yeah, sorry, I can't stop myself from going fly mode on you. Yeah. So um, you're going to need to go for a middle of the night abortion real quick. <laughs> yeah. And um and yeah we sort of we we get from uh we get from the dream sequence of her uh being pregnant and going to get an abortion and having to deliver this giant writhing uh lava Disgusting. to to her <laughs> then you know seeing seeing him at his most advanced stage yet and leaving Stathis is waiting outside for her and she's she's frantically manically insisting on an immediate abortion basically. Yeah, and I need I need I need this like out of yeah me. after seeing him yeah I, yeah I cannot have this inside my body, and they go to um they go to somewhere that Stathis knows about or with a doctor who will perform an abortion, and um keeping in mind that it's 1986 I guess, and you know he he can't understand what the big hurry is and they have to try to tactfully explain that uh that the the father of the the, the pregnancy is a very deformed man and they have a reason to believe that the baby will also be deformed. And at this point, this is by far the most kind of traditional monster movie thing that happens. This is what I love is that all the setup is not like this, but by this point in the film, it is full creature B movie like Jeff Goldblum, yeah. giant fly man looking like the hunchback of Notre Dame bursting <laughs> through the wall, like the Kool-Aid man and pulling her out. <laughs> like he's a super villain at this point. Cr crashing yeah. And he's like, the, why uh, do you want to kill Brendel? It's like, it's the only thing, um, left of me and you're going to like kill it. And, you know, he's like very upset about this idea. I do kind of and feel like, uh, obviously I understand, uh, Gina's point of view. Um, but I, I do kind of understand, uh, and have sympathy for him in that mind state just because he's, he knows that he's turning into he's the losing insect. his battle. Right. Yeah, and yeah. he's kind of like, well, maybe this baby will be the last remaining thing of me, Seth. 
rather of, than uh, yeah. of not just him, but but them, right? Right. Of like yeah. this th- this Absolutely. thing that we shared together. Now that I can't, you know, that I I can't be part of that anymore. Yeah. And yeah. So it, there's it a, goes like, such a sadness there, but obviously I I would say Gina, you know, do what you need to do in that circumstance. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I th- I think that we can kind of see in his progression that again it it changes from. It changes from like, how can I, how can I fix this? How can I get back to myself? And he asks yeah. the computer, oh, what happened? Did, did I assimilate the fly? And the computer says, no. Uh, computer says, no, sorry. It turns we, out We just kind of spliced you together, you know? Yeah, you, you have- <laughs> Things you have, happen. You have fused, fused at a, at like a genetically molecular level. And- and that you're just going to become, you know, half of one, half of the other. So he sort of goes from trying to fix that problem to trying to ameliorate the problem to at a certain point, what he's trying to do is like preserve some aspect of himself. He's just trying to preserve some aspect of his own DNA. You know, when he gets mm-hmm. to that point of, oh, well, let's, let's fuse ourselves into one family. And so in that scene where he busts into the abortion clinic and says, oh, how, you know, how are you going to do this? You can really see it aligning with, with the pattern of thinking that Brundlefly is in at this point, which is I'm just trying to preserve some aspect of myself to be left behind. Yeah. I'm just trying mm-hmm. to, to keep any, any sort of example of my, my DNA alive. Yeah, and so, absolutely. And, 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 and what's interesting is that, you know, these are things that, as Jamie mentioned, like you, you sympathize with and you've been primed to feel them mm-hmm. as it transitions into a very extreme, almost action finale used as yeah. an expression of these feelings, which is really amazing. Um, where like the editor shows up to the lab with a, with, with a shotgun being like, you know, he just kidnapped uh, Gina, who I was trying to help her get her abortion. And it turns into this whole thing where he's trying to shove her into the pod to combine the two of them and the baby all into, you know, one being where they can live together. And, you know, again, proposing this idea of a new form of, you know, living of of personhood of some kind. But in order to do that, he has to do these really disgusting acts of inhuman acts that you wouldn't have thought him capable of at the beginning of the movie, like vomiting acid onto John Getz's hand and melting it to the bone and doing I the love, same to uh, his ankle. I love that it <laughs> foreshadows that a bit with we already mentioned it, but when he's looking at it on the TV when Gina presents it to him, and then later on yep. he's seeing it just being happened to, to his, his own body his parts. Leg. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, and and, and, and at this point, the makeup effects for him are going to the point where they. I think the makeup effects artist described it as um, he he was like the Brundle Fly, the uh, the the Brundle thing. He went from the yeah. Brundle Fly to the Brundle thing. The only um, thing left essentially is his. You can kind of see Goldblum's face a little bit in this version. Um, mm-hmm. because the final version is when, you know, he's grabbing onto Gina and dragging her to the, to the pod and his whole face just crumbles off and then there's nothing left of gold. Well, the, at that, all. that's the craziest but, part is, is when, you know, like you can still see him in there, even though he's kind of like the 
beast at the he's completely beastly at this moment yeah. doing beastly actions but then his jaw like falls off mm-hmm. and his hairy legs start bursting through like the skin of his shins and, they and his like head rip, legs. his fly head rips through his human one yeah like it's so sticky and gooey and you know you can Fleshy. hear the tearing of the skin and see how wet and hairy he is like the the final monster here is just like really impeccable and i know it was like a, a puppeteered thing at that point but it was just you know the way that they, the they built it and transitioned unreal. it it's seamless yeah you yeah. still believe that gold blooms inside there <laughs> it's un it's unbelievable yeah and, and he ends up putting himself through the machine thinking that he's got her in there but you know uh stathis shotguns the one pod so it's not connecting her yeah and he basically just transforms transfers just himself through and also with the because of the way that it was disconnected with also the machine and the technology and mm-hmm. so at that point he comes out the other side just like this this fly infused mangled you know animal that's you know completely mortally wounded and also combined with like wires and steel and trying to drag himself over this, and, is, this is the other moment go ahead uh uh, this is this is the other moment for me where it's a particularly Geiger esque bit of production design when the when the when like Brundlefly is dragging itself out of the pod, fused with metal, dragging cables behind it has a bit of um has a bit of that sort of visual vibe of both uh, like Geiger and and like uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man kind of stuff yeah, that, um, absolutely. that that sort of that sort of pipe and hose kind of hanging out of the back of him as he drags himself along the floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and then and then the perversity of looking at that and going, you know, uh essentially she has to put him down like a dog out back. Like he drags yeah. the shotgun and, over to his head with his right. big greasy claw and he's like please like kill That's me. That's the saddest and the part perversity is that like Cronenberg of just like doesn't have him you know, just become even after that transformation, he does another transformation. Uh, he still is is is, is inside him because he's, he's, he's in making there. that yeah. conscious <laughs> decision to be like, you know what, I have gone too far. Please take me out. And it's the, one of the saddest things in the world, just because Gina at first he, she he is kind of coming at her as a monster, and Gina is is crying and like I have to kill him. Has and then the she gun stops, but she can't and, do it. And yeah. he's the one that says no, you need to do it. Not her. Like it's not her being defensive or anything like that. It's just a, a moment of I guess you could say mercy. And it's just one of the saddest, most heartbreaking endings I've I've ever seen. Well, and and it and it ends on this moment of someone you love is no longer the thing that you loved anymore and it's begging you for help and that help is shotgunning its fucking head to pieces and yes. chunks flying it's, it's such so a good meaty. effect oh, it's, so, it's good. so good <laughs> it's too good and it, <laughs> and it has that effect happen and then ends on her just screaming and crying and the lights fading to black and you're yeah. like yep that's just one of the most tragic like breakup movies that you've ever seen in your life <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Five out of five. It's uh, it, it it's <laughs> unreal, but we we should be pivoting, I think, over towards the reductive rating around here, which uh, it probably is clear from the way that we've been talking about it. This one is a pretty easy um five for me. Oh yeah, uh, I just think it's a perfect combination for Cronenberg of things that you wouldn't expect him to do because you know he kind of thought of himself as a very uh you know john carpenter didn't like talking to him very much because he found david cronenberg very pretentious and you can tell in a lot (laughs) of his films he's about the ideas and he's doing something deeper and more meaningful and it was very interesting for me 
to see all of his career long proclivities about the body and about technology and about sex reworked into a very commercial package that mm-hmm. he was brought into where he combines absurd creature B movie stuff. He totally is invested in this genuinely mature and romantic love story at the center of it. You get involved with these characters in that way uh, and then buy into the absurd physicality of the uh, makeup effects, which makes you f- then viscerally feel, you know, the uh, the things that he's terrified of and, and intrigued by. And it's a it's a real miracle. It has the fear of the flesh and the poetry of it, the warm connection of two people being brought together and, and in love. Uh, but then also, you know, sort of like the the more flawed elements and the sicker elements and then eventually just the absolute tragic evisceration and destruction of of the body in the finale and you know he addresses things like terminal illnesses and cancers and aging and you know this feeling that your body is betraying you and you are you know morphing into something else and how that just all ties into the sexual and romantic angle and fears of infection and stuff like that is just you know it's it's really gruesome and intelligent stuff and very deeply felt it's it's absolutely his his most um emotionally tragic film outside of like maybe dead ringers yeah um without without having to sacrifice how uh sort of b-movie goopy and unsettling that he can be in in his uh his other best work as well so yeah for me this is five yeah uh five out of five for me too just incredible uh effects uh top notch uh great direction amazing performances uh I, i i think the uh the tragic ending is is suitable for the story that's that's taken place. I really do feel this one by the end. I mean, watching Gina just having to kill Seth and and break down, and that's how they choose to end too, with no other, uh, no other little plotting or anything like that or character moment. Just left with a a, a love that that was destroyed. And um, yeah, it's just it's fantastic. I don't, I, you probably have seen it, but if you haven't, please go watch it. Five out of five. Yeah, for you, Andrew. It's a big five out of five for me as well. Um, Hell yeah. Yep. I think uh, like you're saying, Jamie, when it uh, sort of gets to the end and just sort of ends immediately, I think it's a nice reflection of the way that the movie starts with the two of them coming together. Yeah. Um, we we take a break. <laughs> and then apart. Well, yeah, we, we take <laughs> like the, the only point, the only point where the timeline shifts in the movie is when the two of them aren't together or, or like, you know, sort of immediately uh, apart and together again. It really is just a, a love story of the two of them. It's very tragic, very beautiful, yeah. very gross. Without without Cronenberg, this would still be a very good movie about just watching someone you know change and transform and you know into some something else and yeah. you know just the 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 sort of tragedy of having to watch that happen in real time and watch it and then but then you know having Cronenberg there to physically represent that for you in the most extreme way possible just I think makes it that much more impactful and brutal. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that'll wrap it up, I think, here for The Fly. We're going to be right back. We're going to be talking about Phase 4.
All right, we are back and we are talking Phase 4, the 1974 science fiction horror film uh, directed. It Was it? Was this written? No, written by uh, Mayo Simon um, mm-hmm. and directed by the legendary graphic designer um, Saul Bass. Uh, we've actually talked about him. Inspired by H.G. Wells' uh, Empire of the Ants short story as well. I see. Yes, which is, yeah, it's a story of a, a, a boat captain who's like called to assist a village in the upper Amazon where they're fending themselves off from like mm-hmm. a plague of ants who turn out to be kind of like hyper intelligent and militarized and poisonous. And yeah, they end up killing like tons of people and essentially end up working uh, as like this colonial force heading towards Britain. And that's like basically how the story ends. It's just abs- it ends with the horrified idea that they are they are coming. coming. Yeah. Um, Have you guys watched yeah. the 70s movie? empire of the ants i haven't seen it no i have not okay Um, but i'm 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 curious to see how it how it differs because Mm -hmm. i i was really intrigued by saul bass's version of this which is definitely you know is a horror story and it it has fear and it's it's definitely afraid of the ants but it also has this um thing that makes it i think suitable to being a cronenberg double feature pairing which is that it has this kind of mind-bendingly curiosity to it it's kind of a, open a lot of focus um, on the ants and the just the colony and their interactions and like there's even a part where they're mourning some of the ant deaths and stuff like yeah, that like lining yeah. them up as a funeral like soldiers um so i yeah. like that they kind of yeah they focus on the ant colony and don't just make them this like scary creature they they kind of bring an understanding to them a little bit um, yeah, just, there's, just there's on, this societal transformation, definitely, that he is yeah. more intrigued and interested in accepting of than you would expect of, you know, someone else who were to adapt this into like a monster movie. Right. Straight up. Uh, <laughs> just on Saul, yeah. Saul Bass for a second, like obviously uh, people, Incredible. Know, uh, people know his graphic design from movies like uh, West Side Story and Goodfellas, Casino, Cape Fear, Psycho, lots Unreal. of extremely iconic things i yeah, we've, we, he's come up so many times on this show with us do we've covered vertigo psycho seconds grand prix right. casino goodfellas like you know we've we've mentioned him you know a dozen times on this show just because he's done like the title sequence or the poster or something like well, he did the poster for the shining as well he's an incredible visual oh, wow. artist well this is something i i did not know is that he's also responsible for designing like uh some of the most iconic logos in north american history yep. uh the bell yep. telephone logo the at&t logo continental <laughs> airlines united, united airlines, airlines. yeah geffen records um yep uh hanna barbera hanna barbera the quaker oats company uh yeah. warner communications kleenex holy Man. shit <laughs> That's crazy. Girl Scouts of the USA. Yeah, this 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 dude has done some incredibly iconic uh, graphic design. So like really, yeah. Whether really whether you know him or not, you have seen his right. um his, his visual his art in some capacity in your life. And apparently, he got really into that and got into um specifically title sequences and posters and stuff because he loved this idea of you know he did all these corporate logo work but he was really intrigued by the idea of of pure images generating mood for an audience and he loved the idea of someone coming to him with like here's the feeling i want an audience to have leaving this film how can i do that purely through you know like visual 
design. Um, there's, and so, yeah, that's how we got into doing those opening sequences. Yeah. Like I think about seconds, the opening stuff to seconds. I think about that shit all the time, the way that it's fractured and distorted and just yeah. so unsettling. Um, unreal work. I, I, I guess there's, there's another aspect that makes his work really distinctive, which is that, um, yeah, it's 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 very not, stripped down well, and minimalist. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's not just about an expression of mood. Like I think what what you've just described is that his work really, really forms a part of the film. Like it's it's not it's not kind of something just sort of appended to the front and the back. Like often, often it's this this real sort of mood setting um, communicates mm-hmm. things to you about the like about the the plot of the movie and the the nature of it there are some things where like uh some of his some of his work was like um you know animated prologues and epilogues to the movies that are in there um so mm-hmm. it, it was stuff that i think really really formed part of the the overall creative vision and narrative of the film as opposed to just kind of you know we made a movie and then an agency did a poster for it or a logo mm-hmm. or you know, designed designed a title card. It really is a part of the film in a in a way that it's it's clear he's a, a creative collaborator of the director. Yeah, well, and and that makes it really intriguing that this was his only feature directorial outing. And from what I understand, it basically occurred by total happenstance that he did never. You know, this movie they basically like improvised this movie on the spot because Saul Bass had a producer friend who was dining with the head of Paramount one night and the guy turned to him and asked him what he was working on and instead of saying you know like uh, I got nothing I got nothing <laughs> he said uh an ant movie I had no idea why he had ants on his mind but he said that he's working on an ant movie Goes and the Paramount the guy calls up Saul yeah for whatever reason the Paramount guy was like I'm kind of interested in an ant movie. Tell me more about this ant movie. <laughs> so then he calls up Saul Bass, who just happened to have to have friends who both were in nature photography and also had a friend who was at, like a legitimate expert and worked with ants. And then bam, they had that, that was a movie the, underway. That's so that funny. Was the, the thing that killed me when I was reading about it was it said, yeah, Raul read in called Bass who had a friend who worked with ants. <laughs> yeah oh yeah like so, very guy. um yeah very very like new york oh i've got an ant guy yeah <laughs> yeah let me call him up My goodness. we'll get oh, we'll, we'll get we'll get something cooking let's five look up stories with the word ants in the title um, <laughs> but i'm glad they we'll did see what we got i mean this guy this guy knew what he was doing he was some of the shots that they get in this to tell the uh the ant story itself is pretty unbelievable like some of the first things they they show is the ants kind of uh, progressing in intelligence and learning to communicate with one another. And they do these close-ups mm-hmm. where each faction of ant has like a symbol on their forehead as they're talking. And then they, they you know, they yep. create these giant They're, they're meeting, they're making decisions, they're starting a society, they're, you and know, they're creating hieroglyphics ants, and is, monuments and... Yeah, yeah, which is the coolest part just because, um, I mean, I don't know how they, they would do it, obviously, but they, you know, they would film what the ants were doing and then apply it to the story as it went. And it's just a, it was a very cool. This the way is they um, best performances by ants yes. that you've <laughs> yes. ever seen in a movie. Absolutely. 100%. Cause these are, these are real macro photographed ants doing the things that you're seeing um, in this film and tying that footage to like this, this microscopic footage to something that feels more 
cosmic. Like the opening, right. literal opening sequence of this completely evokes like 2001 A Space Odyssey. Like it's beautiful formations mm-hmm. of stars and lights and shapes and planetary objects. And it tracks this cosmic event that has sparked this change that the the quote unquote the 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 change that is happening to these ants and you know in the narration they say like astronomers argued over theory and engineers got excited about variables in the magnetic fields and mystics predicted that earthquakes and the end of life as we know it were coming but what really happened was a bunch of ants got brains (laughs) it was um it's kind of uh like in in that sense it shares qualities with both you know your classic uh, horror movie set up of like you know Night of the Living Dead uh, a comet went over and some stuff went weird and <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing but also like Night of the Comet type stuff where yeah. where it's just there is an otherworldly factor at play and something has changed and this is what it is but I also felt like the uh, the the setup of the movie follows that kind of classic um, classic science fiction like um, epistolary sort of sort of setup, like like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where it's it's sort of being communicated through excerpts from reports and and pieces of research, and it's it's like mm-hmm. a faceless narrator reading out to us, um, you know, this is this is what happened initially, and this is what we're observing in this report, and people thought it was just something to watch you know they didn't know what was going to yeah, happen yeah in, in in that way it kind of reminded me too that the way that we eventually kind of get trapped with the characters experiencing this thing that's going to have larger implications you you spoke of romero i thought about the crazies um, oh yeah quite a bit not not, not just because of the the giant uh, suits the that suits. they're wearing <laughs> that are terrifying as well um but yeah, that was something I thought about. I thought a little bit about altered states, Ken Russell's altered states with the sort of For psychedelic sure. um, elements and how kind of surreal and terrifying, but kind of strangely beautiful and blissful um, this film is about this eventual future ant dominated um, world uh, that's taking place here. But I, I well, do love that so much of this is just getting you into the world of the ants, as as Jamie put it, like just this macro photography of them walking along crystals and dirt and observing their their pincers and moving with them like they are operating on like some sort of alien planet that's like yeah. just beneath our feet. I also like that- the way that they uh they light certain aspects of the colony. Like when they get to the queen, they give her this like flashing blue light. It feels just very much like what we'd see in something like a, a science fiction movie or, or something like that. And obviously, I, I guess because they kind of use that imagery in this film, but uh, the the queen itself reminded me of aliens when she's giving birth to all the the eggs and, uh, of the other <laughs> yeah. aliens. So it, it was it was cool to see that just on a a microscopic level and and using real insects. Something uh, another aspect. Um, to this film that I thought was kind of interesting and it gives it a really different tone to a lot of other movies, both from this era and about this sort of topic. Cause it does occupy a kind of strange space, you know, between mm-hmm. the kind of um, the sort of pulpy sci-fi of the fifties and sixties of, of the kind of, um, you know, giant ants from the desert sort of thing. Psychedelic Tarantula seventies. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it, so it's so it's sort of stuck between that and between like the the sci-fi blockbusters of the end of the seventies, you know, starting off with Star Wars and the whole wave of of sci-fi movies that that kicked off. Right. And it's sort of in in this in this weird middle ground between those things. 
And what I what I was kind of struck by is that the tone of the film is that it basically begins by saying you're fucked. Like <laughs> like this this is this is happening. This is how the world died is kind of the 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 vibe mm-hmm. at the beginning, you know? It's sort of a uh the world is doomed. This has happened. The person who is sort of speaking to you uh voicelessly at this point is just acknowledging that this has happened and they're they're telling you this is this is how it happened. So we're kind of locked into this mode from the very beginning of the scientists involved here and the planet essentially are doomed. You know? Yeah. So yeah. we're not really we're not really suffering under any illusions here that there is a chance for the scientists that we that we're kind of uh, going on this journey with are going to win, or that there's going to no, be any, any kind of solution totally to what's here, happening. J- yeah, we're we're totally here just to sit in the filth of this biological imbalance that has taken place, and also to experience sort of like the last minute sort of like death psyche freak out experiences that people are about to have when faced with their own, you know, impending doom that they are about to experience. Yeah. And And I think that he walks a really interesting balance of like really, really tactile macro photography. That's incredibly grounded in these real physical objects. And then applying also these very sort of experimental and atmospheric visual and sonic touches to it that make it feel unreal um at times and it's you know so it, it totally captures this bizarre biological happenstance that is um taking place and we have already lost to even though you know we're just watching the characters yeah. kind of rage against you know something that they they have to accept i like the way they introduce the ants as well like the the one of the first things we also see is they them having a giant battle and they're them killing each other <laughs> Um, but yep. then we see them also communicating and watching over the human beings that show up uh, through the towers and all of that. And it kind of gives start taking signals. down spiders and mantises and millipedes, like yeah. disobeying yeah. the laws of nature. Yeah. In these amazing time lapse um, photograph sequences of them, you know, just killing bigger and bigger animals to the point where eventually they're killing like, um, you know, bunnies and sheeps and horses. Like it's crazy. Yeah. And they have both aspects where clearly the ants are capable of killing, but they're also capable of communicating and working together. Um, and unfortunately, the first thing that the humans do, specifically Hubs, uh, the guy that kind of gets a little crazy, uh, he takes a little mini grenade launcher and destroys all of the towers um, to, to, to get the a little rise monuments out of them. that they've built. Yeah. And and at first you would think and, and James, the other doctor, who's more trying to just get on their wavelength, try to communicate a little bit because he, he sees that they're progressing in, 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 in intelligence. Um, and I just think like the ants were probably going to inevitably take over. It seems like that's the case, but it also seems like they would have been more, uh, it, uh, it would have been an agreeable thing for them to, um, work with us if it weren't for hubs, just kind of jumping the gun to get the, get their, uh, research going by grenading all of their towers and basically creating a, a battle from the very beginning. Mankind um, as an aggressor thing? Is this what you're trying to say to <laughs> that's me? That's right. What? That's right. I don't know. Just to keep it I don't short. know if I believe it. <laughs> yeah. It is um 
It is interesting the the setup how we sort of go from saying we're we're aware of this thing happening in the desert, like like essentially the the other thing that's interesting with how the film is broken up is that it's the movie is phase four, and the movie begins by saying phase one. Oh, and, yeah. and and giving us this sort of just, just like the fly there's stages you yeah know? yeah this is a this is a slow gradual transformation into a new type of living yeah and so tonally it is quite different because in the fly we have stages but we travel with the character as the character is okay at first and has you know all of this potential to change the world and have great achievements and everything and then something goes wrong and we travel along with them as they realize that they are, they are completely without hope and everything. Whereas this movie kind of opens by saying, there is no hope. This is how we got to where we are. And phase one is basically the stage where like there is a threat growing. And some of these scientists are kind of aware that something's happening and they've gone mm-hmm. out to where it's happening to sort of observe and uh, and assess the situation. So cuz like farmers yeah. in the area are leaving because of their crops and their livestock and all of that, I believe. Like 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 cows and horses getting killed by ants and and there's yeah, all and these, like, like, these like small holes buried into their bodies that they can't quite explain. And the holes the holes look like kind of um they're the sort of gauge of like you know, a, a drill hole through a piece of wood kind of thing. Often in sequences mm-hmm. of 3 like an ellipsis. And yeah. so there's these mm-hmm. two two scientists, Lesko and Hubs. Uh, I can't remember the name of the actor who plays Lesko, but we all know him as the mayor from Batman Returns. That's right. Um, <laughs> and and Hubs. And so Lesko's deal is that he is Wait, like isn't the uh, mayor. Uh, oh no, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting it mixed up. I was thinking that was Watkins. Yeah, Michael Michael Murphy. Uh, he's also in Magnolia right, and right. like McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And yeah, he's he's there been in quite a few things. Right. Continue, Andrew. Sorry. <laughs> so so Lesko is um Lesko is like a sort of game theory and language guy. I, I do love that they bring it's the game theory expert. They were like, we need you to interpret these geometric statues that the ants have built and the crop circles and all of this, and yep. also start working on a way to translate and communicate with them and right. you know find you yeah. know and figure out some way so he, he he he's meant to be the peaceful observer coming in to just find out what's happening and start trying to bridge some sort of uh communication project with them whereas james comes or sorry no he's james lesko hubs is the other guy yeah. hubs is a more extreme character um and he has kind of a, a more hidden sort of angrier agenda that he doesn't kind of reveal until later in the film but he is he is a lot more brutal and a lot more yeah this is just another desert development that didn't develop so fuck well, it and, and fuck these people and like, <laughs> yeah. yeah and we also get the sense like I mean, I, I think we get the sense pretty quickly that Hubs has more of a sense of what's going on, um, and he's yeah. and he's not. He he has like more of a sense of you know the the ants are hostile. hostile. The yeah, ants are hostile. He thinks the takeover yeah. is nothing but a negative thing for the human race, right? Yeah, they're hostile. They are building power, and and we're here to kind of act as a as a barrier to them. Whereas. He's not making Lesko very aware of this stuff. He's being quite cryptic, you know. He seems like he's hiding something. So Lesko, on the other hand, is is just like, oh well, you know, let's see if we can have a chat with the ants. And like you said, there's there's been this this formation of like very two thousand and one esque monoliths in the desert. They're all they're all these yep. sort of uh, geometrical 
diamond shaped things with an offset notch in them at the top. And everybody else in this valley has cleared out except for one family who stayed behind and they don't want to leave. Um, I would note at this point that th this is like pretty early in the movie and uh, during the whole opening sequence where the soundtrack was going on and everything, I immediately uh, purchased a copy of the soundtrack on vinyl. Nice. <laughs> oh, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> so I was like, this, this shit goes really hard. Uh, so I, yeah, I, I, also to hear like synth work this nuts uh, in like 74 because like what pre yeah, previously 70s, to this what yeah. the, what was the most popular was like what like a clockwork orange probably mm -hmm. um so like yeah i mean like this this is way before synths were like the norm for this kind of film yeah um, and, and even and then even then the synth stuff in in like kubrick movies was often you know playing an interpret pardon me playing an interpretation of an existing piece of music um, yeah, that's true, too. As, as opposed to doing this sort of like very atmospheric stuff. I mean, the only sorts of other things I can really think of are usually um, confined to like, you know, prog bands. Every doing, 80s crime drama. Or, or, or like, <laughs> like um, I'm thinking particularly of like prog bands doing soundtracks for like. Yeah, Goblin. Um, Goblin like is something Yellow that was operating like that. around yeah. that time. Yeah, yeah. So, so very, very, very cool atmospheric soundtrack and everything. Um, so at this point, we transition into phase two. And this is where the scientists are trying to communicate, you know, so they're, they're trying to do a bit of chatting back and forth. But it's also at this point, I think, where we really ramp up Bass, like trying to give the ants a narrative as protagonists in the movie, like almost equal to the humans. Um, yeah. Because there's a point here where, you know, that the, I think... I think it's around the point where some of the family some of the family are still around and they like they, yeah they, they they they're going door to door telling locals who are still there like they got to get out like they're yeah. like he they, like they don't know it yet or at least lesco doesn't know it yet hub seems to knows it to know it but they're about to go to war with these ants and they know that you know these these farmers already kind of we're seeing detail about how they are having to adjust their process to the existence of these ants anyway. Um, like there's this whole reveal where like the, the ants are there to get revenge on the monument breaking um, that hubs did to try and activate them and, you know, try and bait them into, you know, uh, actually coming forth so they can start this, this communication and they start killing the farmer's horse. You can hear the horse screaming and the granddaughter is there freaking out and screaming. And they, they previously told them that they should leave. Uh, but they said, no, like this is all that we have. We're going to stay here. And there's this amazing sequence where like it's pitch black at night. It's void. Like these ants are just murdering this horse. I and you love, can just like, hear it screaming I love and the they light up that fire moat mm -hmm. that they have there, which is there to clearly they've installed that to prevent the ants from like getting further into the property and to, and, and also the ants were actually seeing like their military tactics. Right. Like they're, yes. they're riding along on the little like boat on the little like plank of wood down the river to get there and everything like and they that. Show it's everything. very interesting. They show show like the the floating of the ants that are on the on the wood piece and then they show it kind of hitting the ground so that they can all move out into the field to get to the horse like every military step uh is is shown visualized yeah, it's, and it's 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 awesome it's like it, you're watching a boat deliver a bunch of uh foot soldiers yeah, or to I was a battlefield like watching <laughs> uh you know when they're sneaking into the to the base in um 
uh, apocalypse now, like their their heads are rising above right. the water. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's uh, it's it was just very cool to see like this army of ants do it. And once again, it's just the, the authenticity of using the real insects just adds such a a cool little uh, yeah, nature and, and, and then splicing that it. like the like the like the way that this uses again sort of like the experimental editing patterns and then also creates a sense of scale out of it where like you're seeing images of these ants pulling up like they're about to go to war and then you get this close up of this horse just freaking out and you're putting it together in your head mm-hmm. that the the ants are starting to go through its body like the sheep earlier who has the holes in it and stuff like that so like you know it, it he doesn't have the budget to show you ants biting through a horse's stomach but you kind of have an idea on what it is that's um and we've already seen them deteriorate like the spider and eventually we see it do like a field mouse or something like that so yeah kind of have an idea uh, at least of what they're capable of so even when you're seeing the horse freak out you you know you, you still have a visual in your head well and the pure chaos of the imagery of just like the fire raging in the background and all the people running around and eventually getting in the car and um the car eventually crashing and exploding because they arm them they operate like a chain and basically like eat their way through the engine of the car and stuff like that too which is you know like these are really intelligent organized ants and the only reason they're lashing out and doing this to anyone is because hubs uh, destroyed their <laughs> symbolic, possibly religious monuments that Did they were ever. building. And they were like, what the fuck? Yeah, like, um, bro, this was just art. Like we're just, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're expressing ourselves and you come up with a mini grenade launcher. Come on now. Yeah. So, so the only thing these scientists have done is piss the ants off, uh, started getting them killing people. And even then not actually being the ones to kill the people, it was actually the scientists chemical weapon yeah, that they unleashed. It's just was like the, the ants. Yeah, the the crystallized sort of like yellow gas that yeah, they so send out um, it's to them. Thick so, too. Yeah, this this re- leads to some, uh, like a very again very visually striking sequence as this stuff yeah. is raining down on both the ants and the people who are left there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and people are just the, getting. Like, it shows the suffering of the people and the ants equally, which I find very interesting. Yes. Yeah, and and this leads to like this really interesting sequence that again goes goes a long way to sort of communicate the intelligence of of the ants to us which is that after this has happened we've got all of these like ant corpses fused into this yellow stuff that's caking the entire landscape right and we get all these shots of of basically like a massive ant graveyard of all of these things sticking out Mm -hmm. and And then and, and, and the scientists walking around in their suits, like looking at them and stuff like that. Yeah. And so and so one ant um, pops up out of this hole and grabs a chunk of the poison and drags it back down into into the ant nest. And we get this sequence where, again, real macro photography of a real ant. And I, I was really struck by how this managed to actually be quite affecting where this this singular soldier ant is dragging this this chunk of yellow poison down uh like a sort of shaft in the ant's nest and at a certain point it becomes weak because it's being killed by the poison that it's dragging along and then Mm. it dies and collapses onto the to the lump of stuff and at this point another solitary ant comes out pushes the first dead ant off the lump of poison and then continues dragging it further down. Then this ant succumbs to the poison. And then another ant, just a single ant, comes out, 
knocks the other corpse off, picks it up and drags it in. And but and through this a sequence, perfect division of labor yep. is how right. uh, the scientists who observe this behavior end up describing it. Uh, perfect altruism and self-sacrifice and, and harmony. And they do this in order to drag the poison down to the queen, which eats it. And then starts giving birth to a new kind of ant, which has been immunized against the poison. Yeah. Hell yeah. So, so, so yeah, you can see this whole sequence where they're able to, um, they're able to adapt to what's happening. They can recognize what's happening, but much like Brundlefly said, you know, they have the, they have the cold calculation of insects and the willingness to sacrifice individuals. Um, in order to triumph. And so you've had all these ants make the sacrifice of their own lives in order to like immunize a whole new bunch of ants. And those ants go on to build new structures, new structures, which are another form of weapon. Um, these ants build, yes. they, they build these new structures, which are covered with like a, a, a crystalline surface on top directly positioned in order to reflect sunlight onto the dome tent that the scientists are now stuck inside, essentially just over time starting to bake them inside the thing. Yep. yep. And their technology. Make them go crazy, using, heat them up. Uh, frog, frog, in, frog in the pot experiment. Right. <laughs> and the computers that they're using at a certain temperature, they'll stop working so they can't do further research and uh, really survive in that lab in general. Um, and and as I, I do goes, like how like much of this movie know that and realize it. Yeah, I, I do like how much of this movie is just like seventies guys smoking and sweating and kind of hanging out in like a in a computer lab, like being like, <laughs> "Are these ants going to talk to us? Like, are we going to do something about you know do something here?" One going insane, um, one just trying to do math. Yeah, and one of my favorite um, sort of cross-cutting examples in this film is the sequence that Andrew was talking about where we watch this, you know, this sort of this perfect vision of, you know, a, a harmonious society of, of sacrifice and a division of labor with preordained rules, uh, roles and, you know, able to execute and evolve and adapt, um, you know, at will, incredibly powerful as a mass, but as he said, kind of defenseless as an individual, like it's just a small little creature. But the contrast to watching that is watching Hubs and James come outside to look at the chemical weapon massacre that they've committed. Yeah. And they show all the ants murdered there, but then they also show the two farmers um, that they have killed there. And this is one of the most interesting moments for me because, you know, they find out that, you know, James is really upset that they have, you know, killed these people. Um, and it's a really horrifying image. Like they have, you know, literally killed them with chemical weapons. Um, like their skin is fucked up. They're trying to cover their faces. There's ants running through their body, through the holes and things like that. And the guy, uh, hubs just says, you know what? People get killed sometimes. It's a shame they didn't leave when we told them. Uh, now come over here and look at this chain of ants that formed to blow up the generator in this car. It's amazing. It's, it's very cold, very ruthless. And like it's pragmatic in, right. in the moment in this war against the ants. But it's such a contrast to the totally sequence that Jamie already mentioned later where they actually do successfully like massacre, uh, you know, an entire wing of the ants. And there is this whole like funeral montage of it. 
and there's where like gore. the ants are like they actually show yeah. the, the 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 basically ants it's being like crushed earthquake. by rocks yeah and so yeah and, and what's funny to think about too is just how small those rocks probably actually were to crush the ants because they're doing these you know yep. you're going into the microscopic world of the ants and you know they have uh basically their their lower half with the the big uh the big butts that they got are just squished and they spray out this this green guts or blood or whatever it is. And it just feels very much like uh, the, the exploitation movies that we see, just the the violent aspect of it. They they included the gore. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's just so amazing because, like, again, part of this on like a literal level is the scientists at war with the ants. And there's various ways that they fight this war. Like sometimes the ants will, you know, try to bite their way in and mm-hmm. they end up kind of like fucking up some mantises. One of my favorites is when they just like throw the mantis oh. into a pile of their computers and electrocute the mantis to death. And before that, it's just an incredible action image. Yeah. And before <laughs> that, they show uh, it's almost like a Mission Impossible sequence where this ant is. Uh, crawling down this circuit, the spiral wire, and you can you can literally yeah, put the, yeah. the Mission Impossible music behind <laughs> it. It'd be like dun 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 dun, and then he starts to bite off the wire. But it's a real ant, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, then then yeah, the praying mantis comes up, and before the one ant comes to uh, pull the mantis down and destroy both the 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 beast and uh, the the air conditioning, it eats the one ant alive just in front yep. of its of its friend. Uh, and, and there is like, you know, you've seen this before, probably if you've ever watched a nature documentary, but just the context of knowing these ants as things that communicate and feel yeah, the, the, and, the tone and mood makes a difference. Yeah. It's not like an objective animal. Nature is just taking its course. Exactly. Like there is, there is, there is real dramatic thrust and the one to the sequences that, that we're watching, the, that we're watching not get eaten, but the one that's watching the other ant get eaten is an ant that we've seen from the very beginning. It's got like the green butt or whatever. And it seems to yeah. be something that's trying its best separate from the colony to communicate with the human beings and say that they're not necessarily there to commit violence against them. It's just like we're trying to communicate and progress and kind of come together in some way. Um, and then, you know, even with that, ant, you get this great sequence where it very much reminded me of the incredible shrinking man that we covered last week, um, where you, you just have this small creature that's trying its best to survive in this giant world, which includes uh, shots of like uh, hubs fingers trying to smack it or grab it. Yeah. That stuff it. is great. Yeah, so it's awesome. where, where his, 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 yeah, it's, it is like the incredible shrinking man where right. like the guy is fighting a cat, but like the house cat is like the size of a giant monster that exactly. he's fleeing from. It's the same thing, but like macro photography of Hubs's hand just like clumsily smashing around the, the floor and breaking glass and, and bleeding and things like that. There's also great uh ways that they combine um shots of ants and humans together where they use like rear projection so you'll get like the silhouetted over oh, the yeah. shoulder shot of like an ant and it'll be like yeah with like the 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 farmer's granddaughter kind of gets trapped in there with the two scientists because she survives the chemical warfare attack by hiding and then she is in there during sort of like these attack sequences where she's trying to also express her revenge against the ants because the ants killed her grandparents as she sees it so like that's one of the first things she does is destroy their little setup they have in the lab yeah 
Um, yeah, so it's, it's very interesting watching the ants just like respond to, you know, like they, they view the humans as like aggressors in the situation and are just responding in turn. And then yeah. I, I almost forgot about this, but because she does that, she starts to think that they're coming after them She's because of her. Right. And then she does kind yeah. of like a self-sacrifice when in fact, you, I would put my money on hubs. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, it's um yeah. J- just, James is hilarious because he's just there. He's just like, I just wanted to spend a couple weeks of science in the sun, man. I didn't want no war with some goddamn fucking ants. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Well, um, coming coming back just very briefly to uh, what you were saying, Jamie, about like the the ants sort of doing a little little ant funeral and everything. I mm. I feel like there's a lot of effort to contrast like the the behavior of the ants and the behavior of the humans. And maybe, yeah, and and to I guess to suggest as well that like for the ants, there's an evolution taking place. You know, they're they're changing. They've developed this kind of um, hive mind communication across different kinds of ants because this isn't just an ant right. colony of a single type of ant. They've started to sort of, you know, recruit and involve different types of ants and different sizes and colors of ants, and they're like spawning new types of ants. And yeah. they have that whole sequence where, you know, the the special, the special uh, poison immune ants that they birthed to go up and build the reflective, uh, the sort of reflective apparatus to attack the scientists with. Those ants all get killed in that, uh, in when those when they get sort of broken apart, and. You know, the, the, yeah, the is, is that up. when they start doing the sonic warfare? Yeah, with like the yeah. dog so, whistle so, noise that they're doing, and 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 like to us, it's just like an annoying sound. But then it's cross cut with them, where it's basically operating as like this, you know, this earth shattering yeah, event, this mm-hmm. kind of like, an, like an earthquake res- resonation that's sort of shaking their whole their whole uh, their whole thing apart. And yeah. you do get yeah. to see all those internal angles of everything crumbling and falling down and crushing ants and. And after that's happened, the other ants come out and they retrieve all of the bodies and they take them down and they line them up in rows like it's um, military funeral. Yeah, baby. yeah. They're like mourning them. There's even a sad <laughs> yeah. score, like kind of like military. I, I don't know if there's snares that are necessarily like a funeral march or something like that, but there, there are like very somber horns and things like that. So, yeah. And, and they line them all up like it's Arlington, you know? Yeah, uh, in in these long rows and everything and the ants kind of bow down and mourn them and meanwhile we have contrasted with that the human scientist who's like ah so we so we kind of cooked some people while we were doing it so we killed people yeah fuck that shit oh well yeah Yeah. he's he's completely he's completely disinterested in the loss of human life that's happened here so it's almost like we have this kind of switching of the places where where the ants are, are coming to develop like you know an, an empathy and a, and a grief for the loss of other ants and at the same time mm. we're being shown this kind of this this callousness and carelessness uh, from the humans involved I think yeah. one of the things that's quite uh, admirable about this movie even if it doesn't always succeed because I think that it would be a very uh, I think it would be a very reasonable criticism to say that uh, Bass seems infinitely more interested in directing like visual (laughs) scenes and and components of like visual design and movement and communication than he is in directing the parts of the movie that involve like actors (laughs) performing and playing characters yes Um, yeah that would be fair yeah i think me back the first time i watched it because i was just i i was absolutely just 
I loved every bit when when they showed the ants and how they were communicating and evolving and all of that. And then just some of the the human aspects, I could tell he just didn't take as much interest in. Um, but yeah, it, it and, still and comes I, together well. But yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I I, I saw a, a criticism. You know, I was reading some pieces about it and saw a criticism that was saying that you know he's. He's very adept at directing these sequences of like color and shape and movement and everything, mm-hmm. but but doesn't seem to have that grasp of the sort of really the really basic elements of of uh, like film storytelling and language, like where people are in a scene spatially and how they're moving <laughs> around and all that sort of stuff. You know, like just just the really sort of basic stuff. And these are all things that absolutely makes sense when you understand like who he is and what he's about and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I think that those would be relevant criticisms, but at the same time, it's, it's also makes for like this really interesting film where you can see the things that he's attempting to do in terms of like giving an even weighting to the perspective of the ants and the perspective of the humans, um, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of uh, contrasting their behaviors and, maybe most importantly doing it all uh for the for the ants and the perspective of the ants doing it all without dialogue and without explicitly telling yeah. you at any point this is what the ants are doing this is like you know i th- i think a different filmmaker would maybe have set up some device where the humans were able to observe what the ants were doing and they'd have a character there saying, oh, now we can see, hey, they're exhibiting this kind of behavior that ants do. Right. Um, yeah. Or yeah. They'd, they'd say, this is remarkable. Ants don't do this kind of behavior. No, but, 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 but we're, we're given these amazing procedural sequences of figuring out what it is they're doing, seeing their minds at work, and then also having the visuals find a way to express emotion through that. Like the fact that you feel as much as you feel for these ants in these sequences and that it feels dramatic and it feels mournful is, you know, a true testament to his skill as a, a, a visual filmmaker in that way. Yeah, and then I, also too, as it applies to the human stuff, I find that the, the underplaying of the human elements ends up, playing into this overall idea of the uh, that these characters are in like this larger constructed maze like they do feel like they are just cruel test subjects by the end of the film yeah mm-hmm. and they re- slowly realize that the ants are doing that to them as well they're like yeah we're not observing them they're observing us seeing who is the smartest and the strongest and who has the qualities that they're looking for in their post human post normal ant society where we are going to be formed into like one thing yeah because they don't even expect that the ants will figure out that the air conditioning air conditioning is specifically connected to their research and the technology that they're using but it just kind of happens and when it's destroyed they figure out what what went down because of the ants the mantis whatever and they're like oh my god they're advancing they're they know what we require to do our work and to survive and they're you know consciously destroying it yeah, and I, I think that by that point, there is, this, there is this kind of, you know, as Andrew kind of mentioned at the front, where it tells you up front that you're doomed, but you're watching humans resist against that and do like do an, an equal battled perspective war. Yeah. And at that point, you go, okay, well, who's going to win at this point? But 
there are these subtle hints that there's something more hopeless and claustrophobic that's, you know, taking place here that starts to make more sense to these characters as they slowly get, you know, more hysteric and sort of delirious and uh, with this continued assault that they are um, losing against. I mean, at one point, the granddaughter is so convinced that the ants are just seeking personal revenge against her, which is, you know, from what we understand is a ridiculous thing to think. Um She's so convinced she basically just like decided she's going to commit suicide for the protection of the others. And she goes singing. Jamie, did you did you see what she was singing? Uh, no, maybe I missed leaning it. on the everlasting arms of the <laughs> Lord, baby. <laughs> the song from Night of the Hunter, which we I just covered have, a couple weeks I ago. That. Yeah, I didn't even. Write she, it down. She, she does sing it a little bit differently, but she's okay. in kind of like barefoot and becoming one with the, you know, with the with the grass and the land. That makes and she me walks like this into scene the beauty even of more. the sky. Yeah, that's Ooh. awesome. Yeah, yeah so th- that aspect I thought was really uh, intriguing. And it ends up being like that that isn't even what actually happens. Like right. as we kind of finish in, into the the big climax of, of the film where the two scientists are deciding that they are going to make their way. You know, they've been officially, they have been heated up. All of their equipment is breaking down. They're going crazy. Hubs has also been like bitten and kind of poisoned by an ant yeah, and is starting to, to like get sort of mad a little bit. Yeah, he can't even like put his boots on. Uh, yeah. And but the, and, and he decides the only way out of this is to suit up and hunt down the queen ant and fuck up the queen ant. That that is like the only thing left for them to do. But as soon as he escapes, well, this is of it is when he gets all like he, he's getting really just erratic and, and kind of manic. Uh, and he's like, where are the grenades? And then James just responds <laughs> to him like, you used every single one of them when you destroyed the towers at the beginning. <laughs> He's like, yeah. he's like uh, all of them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so when when we were saying earlier that that we started with phase one, which is the the growing threat and the observation, phase two is the scientists trying to communicate with them and also starting to try and like uh, you know confront them directly. And at mm-hmm. that point, um, at that point, Hubs is still uh, kind of laboring under the illusion that. Um, you know, he sort of says, he says something along the lines of, oh, you know, they've developed this intelligence. We're being confronted with a power and it's our job as, as like basically the stand in for mankind in this situation to confront that power and meet it with our own power and show them what the limits of their power is. So he's, he's basically saying at this point, no, 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 man is the dominant species on this planet and we should <laughs> act accordingly. You know, we'll, we'll put them in their place. And yep. whereas, uh, whereas we have a chance to educate like a lesser being, yeah, yeah, very, like that kind of thing, yeah, very uh, well. <laughs> I, ironically, in dealing with ants, it's a very colonial attitude, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so he's sort of still at at this point. He's entertaining this idea that that it is their role to stand here. Um, to hold fast and push back the tide of of what he sees very clearly as this something that is both incredibly interesting but also a direct threat. Whereas Lesko is is not convinced about any of this at this point, and he still sees the merit in attempting to communicate rather than to retaliate or attack. Um, by the yeah, time he, we he, get- he wants to he wants to cons- find a consolidation of interests with them, an agreement. <laughs> yeah, and by the time we get to phase three which we have entered at this point, phase three, we are at the stage where like 
the the ants have just overpowered the humans. They they have them yeah. stuck in their little their little dome tent research lab. Um, you know, Hubs is going crazy. Lesko realizes that Hub was lying about calling a helicopter to come and pick them up. Um, yeah. When he tries to call they them himself, they think that the farmer's granddaughter has killed herself. <laughs> yep, she's she's gone off. So basically, all of the humans at this point are having their own reactions to it. You know, Hub's reaction is we need to fight and destroy the ants. We need to, you know, cut the snake off at the head. Despite the fact that having been bitten himself, he's been like hiding his his limp arm for a significant yeah. point uh, for for a significant amount of time at this point. And so he is still of the mind that the only like he's getting kind of delirious and he is of the mind that the only thing they can do is is destroy the ants. So he's representing that human impulse. Um, Lesko, meanwhile, is still of the mind that the only thing they can attempt to do is communicate to show them that there is another intelligence uh, at hand. And and the girl, uh, the farmer's the farmer's granddaughter, she has already sort of uh, just just resigned herself to the idea that you know they're they're completely they're screwed. They're completely screwed. The ants have won. But, Eat me. <laughs> but also, I mean, when they first brought her into the lab after she came out of the basement of the farmhouse and fainted, they first brought her in and they were examining some of those ants in a glass case. And she was overcome with grief and has lashed out at those ants and um, you know smashed the container they were in with something. And so mm. there's there's suggestions, you know, she says, oh, could the ants be reacting to like something maybe somebody did or some aggression somebody showed? She's she's taken on. <laughs> no. The, what? Yeah. Well, <laughs> she, and, and so she has taken on, you know, the 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 idea that like she's accepted that they are responsible for antagonizing yeah, the ants. Right. And for for trying to you know combat nature, so they they each represent these these interesting viewpoints of what might be their way out of this. You know, one is one is at one end of the mm -hmm. scale is destruction, the other end of the scale is complete surrender, and in the middle is the attempt to like communicate or compromise, harmonize. Yeah, yeah. And so back yeah, which, which is really interesting because when Hubs breaks his way out because he's going, he's got the you know he's like I am just going to kill the queen, and they they confront the ants directly. This is their final stand that they are making, and Hubs is immediately blinded by all of these lights that these uh, you know these these new sort of. Uh, poison immune ants have been setting up throughout the course of the film that's been slowly heating them up but it's now also a direct obstruction of his vision as he runs out and as a result of that he falls into the trap a literal dirt hole trap that they set up for him yeah. where they then just eat him alive right in front of uh, uh, Lesko in that moment yeah which he is then just like horrified by and he's like oh my god like maybe hubs is right like i like at that point he it goes into this moody crossfade montage that's amazing of his like sweaty face and his cracked helmet with an ant in it and the fields and the mountains and i, I believe they shot the exterior stuff of this in africa to make it as arizona but it's beautiful and him like stripping his suit off in like the sun-stroked heat and the chemical tank that he's spraying and the screaming face of his superimposed over 
cover images of, you know, uh, him monologuing about like, I wish we could have, you know, come up with some kind of understanding, but it's not the way that it's going to be. I've made the calculations and at their rate of expansion using this intelligence, their powers of organization, their network of communications, uh, their genetic adaptation, they're going to move quickly into deserts and countrysides and eventually laid siege to towns and, and cities. And they will learn as they advance and anticipate our moves. Uh, the only counterattack is a direct assault on the queen right now. And I wish it wasn't me, but I got to do it. Like he, 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 because of the horror that he's seen of hubs, he actually has adopted the, uh, you know, his empathy has adopted the hubs mindset, uh, which is very interesting idea because then that is immediately destroyed by, him actually making his way into the layer of the queen and these like amazing images of like a spotlit doorway that he breaks down him sliding down like what looks like a giant anthill hole and stuff like that. Yeah. So good. And and it's what seems to lead into the first time that he's able to really communicate with them because he's, you know, he's the guy that's been trying to do that the entire time to resolve the issues that they've had. Um, and then when they start to merge, I guess, as one uh, and also merge with the ant colony, uh, I'm not entirely sure, but it's because it, it gets pretty psychedelic and, and trippy by the end of this. Um, but yeah, because he sees uh, the farmer's granddaughter emerge from the sand, not the queen. He expects to see the queen and he's going to blow her up with the giant chem- uh, right. can uh, canister of chemicals that he's brought with him. But uh, it's not. It's the it's the farmer's granddaughter who has become one with the 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 ants. Well, well, what does he, he what does he say at, at the end? It. He says um, he says the thing they wanted, they wanted us. And yeah. yes, and, and it like seems he, like more to uh, cooperate. At the end of the day, like obviously yeah, we've seen yeah. this this war, but it, it seems like what they were trying to do was was communicate just like James was and say like we're we're trying to fuse together. We're not trying to necessarily take over. We're trying to cooperate. Um, there's yeah. There's points. Yeah. I, I think there's sort of multiple points in the movie that are sort of hints to what's happening at the end because they talk mm-hmm. about uh, much earlier in the film. They talk about the behavior of some particular types of ants that will attack anything that comes into uh, that comes in a sort of range of them that could be considered mm. a threat, um, you know, a threat sort of in any way. And that's how they've treated Hubs. Hubs has, has been an antagonist. He has attacked them. His only goal is to destroy them. And so they have deliberately trapped and killed him at the earliest opportunity. Which means they preemptively mm-hmm. thought about that too, right? They knew that someone was going to come to them um, rather than trust them in any way. Or uh, it just shows that they knew exactly what at least Hubs was was ready to do. Well, yeah, because that's just it. The, the two humans who approach the ants and don't have this like murderous glee in their eye while they do it, <laughs> yeah. do not get murdered and eaten alive by the ants in the vicious way that they do to Hubs. Yeah, they right? come to so an understanding. Yeah, so it's really in, and the way that he shoots this understanding is just so interesting because there's this giant sand pit and the, the farmer's granddaughter appears out of it and her hands are there. They he embraces her. It starts doing these uh, psychedelic crossfade images of like that. This is the stuff that reminded me of like the altered state sequences with yeah. the whole brain stuff that they do in that and like the the sort of vision quest elements of that. And there's like 
certain images in here where it's like you can see the horizon with the with the sun rising and you can see the sun rising in the middle of his forehead and then the entire shot is um sort of obstructed through the vision as if you're looking at it through like an ant's eye which is actually a shot we see earlier in the film too a, a sort of creepy pov shot where the ants are like voyeuristically spying on the scientists and stuff like that right. so there's like really really interesting elements in this where he comes to this more blissful beautiful they are showing him that they want they also want to harmonize and create a future together one not of violence but one of them all combined into one thing and he does that by combining all of these actual you know visual images together and here's where i have to ask you guys did you watch the original ending to this film i was going to ask you that so. i don't know <laughs> oh. i don't so, know so so um yeah, I, I think like like you um, like you're saying, Josh, uh, the, the uh, what like like what we sort of seem to take away from it at the end is that the that the humans that it's willing to take on are the ones that are willing to cooperate, and I guess like as is the nature of ants, become part of the hive, you know, become part of part yeah, of the right. colony. And, 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 and what, is, what does he say? He says, we were not sure for what purpose, but we were sure that we would be told that like, we are going to be accepted into this society as and, you get this image of and them. They'll, like, they'll be getting commanded. Uh, yeah. yeah. But he also yeah. seems and, to and, have and, a confidence And you get the silhouetted their, horizon. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to, he also seems to have a confidence in whatever idea that we don't learn about, but whatever idea these ants seem to have, he seems like he has a confidence in it. Like, like he, he thinks um, they are yeah. someone to follow for whatever reason. We don't really understand what their overall philosophy is, but um, he's trusting in it. And I think that says something. Uh, well, this is why I have to ask you if yeah. you've seen the original ending, because sure. because this ending of the the theatrical version and the most commonly available version um, until I mean I guess still, but the, this this original six minute longer ending, which is basically the same ending to be clear, okay. like it, it ends the same way with these characters, um, you know, coming to this, uh, you know, sort of. Uh, understanding and consolidation with the ants uh, visually through the images and like you know you see them like silhouetted against the horizon of 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 the sun and then you also see the ants in the kind of like the same position get their own shot like that like the human and ant silhouette are even made to look the same in terms of the way that the bodies are in the frame but the original ending which you can find on youtube and is like available in high quality and apparently is included on some prints after the film and included as like a Blu-ray extra now. But if this was spliced into the, like the actual film, I, it would just be so much better, but it's a full additional, basically like four or five minutes of the consolidation sequence. And it gives you full visions of what the ant like future would actually look like. And it's so fucking <laughs> it's like cool. positive or negative. It's, it's a little bit of both. Okay. It, it has that Cronenbergian element where like some of it looks so surreal and strange and to the point where it almost looks like authoritarian ant like. But then there's wild, other images where it's so it's so beautiful and they're creating a new form of existence where like 
it's hard to describe like them. It's them like running through lava and spinning and becoming different various sort of like space shapes and running on massive structures that look like pyramid mazes that the giant ants are dominating. And then there's yeah. human bodies without faces. There's like hands ripping through foreheads that are on fire. There's like this <laughs> body horror dystopia of surreal landscapes, but it, no, but like, it's just showing you the process like, like, yeah, because like yeah, at that yeah. point it's like, the humans are going to become something else and it might be a painful process, but by the end it comes to like these more like beautiful architecture and like a naked woman giving birth to like a, a sun or a planet or, you know, like faces <laughs> colliding and merging into liquid. It's nuts. Okay. That seems, <laughs> um, uh, that seems more ambig- ambiguous and not, um, as hopeful as this ending, I would say, cause I haven't seen no. the original ending cause it's just, uh, like, but, but it, it, it's a, Go ahead. It's exactly what I described is that like Cronenberg does where it's one yeah, of those yeah. things where you're you're scared and it's different and it's weird and you're it's it's horrifying in some Sounds ways and surreal. <laughs> but the tone of it, I have to say the tone straight up, it's beautiful. Like mm. it's gorgeous. It's it's it feels blissful despite some of the imagery being, you know, overpoweringly scary in in some ways. Yeah, so I, I would, it's a really intriguing. I would um I would probably uh, describe it as as yeah it's um it's a a big montage and like you were saying josh there's sort of uh like suggestions and evocations of of like the planet having been terraformed into these like geometric superstructures and yeah humans (laughs) humans sort of living in there and there's this suggestion of kind of yeah like like ants ants sort of watching what the humans are doing almost like they're sort of pets and but at the same time, that's that's interspliced with like, um, you know, all these sort of these overlapping shots of like eagles soaring in the sky and like and and humans just flying. You know, it, it has this sort of it has this sense of simultaneously you're going to become part of this gigantic thing, this gigantic mechanism. And at the same time, yeah. it's going to offer you this freedom. You're going to become part yeah, of this, but you'll that's also exactly become what it's free, like. you know, that it definitely has the scary monster element of you are going to be you are going to have to accept your new insect overlords on some level. <laughs> but on another level, they are going to change you into a being that is beyond what you've ever been. And there is a kind of like the way that he shoots it. There is like there is an allure to it in a way. It's interesting. I'm going to definitely check it out. I'm very oh, excited I'm going to watch se- this. I'm going to send it to you immediately. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but, but yeah I, I didn't know that there was... I mean, I think I read on the wiki that there was um, an original ending, but I didn't know how available it was, so I'm looking forward to watching it. Yeah, apparently it was just made fully available like online and like on Blu-rays and stuff in the last like two or three years, so... Oh, cool. Very cool. Yeah, so either way, very, very cool, and, and, and totally adds in, because again, you know, there is something you know, sort of really interesting where you're looking at this future ant dominated world where there might be this new hierarchy, but there is sort of like this comforting acceptance that the, the, you know, the form kind of takes to it, that this new form of, of living, uh, you know, might be 
interesting and it might be it might be liberating in a way and it does that through like the sprawling kind of sci-fi visionary sequence stuff that you can imagine seeing in like 2001 like i kid you not the only the thing i thought about was the transcendent uh a giant baby from 2001 yeah, yeah. that was what i was feeling like watching this like mm, you don't look at that and go earth. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah you you know so that's what i was thinking about watching this sequence and it was it was very very intriguing yeah yeah. So uh, everyone, I would recommend going out and watching the uh, the uh, I wouldn't even call it like the original ending or because it's not it's it's the same ending. It's just extended. Right. The extended it, ending. Yeah. Yeah. It is like an extra yeah. five minutes. Um, it is. It, it is five straight minutes of stuff that will make you think about 2001 A Space Odyssey and like Tree of Life and, you know, other various oh, <laughs> uh, just, I, things like that. Yeah. I can't believe that. Yeah. Some studio piece of shit watched that and went, oh, that's too scary or unsettling for me. That would be, it would be much better if it was just kind of a guy staggering through the countryside saying, I'm going to be part of the ant show. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it's just, and I'm, and I'm kind of cool with that. <laughs> yeah. Whereas like, yeah, that, that whole sequence is it's, they actually take the narration out too, Jamie for this. Oh, wow. So it's um, just the, so it, this, this future of ant life it's just this yeah it's just this experience this sensual like experience that's cool yeah i i can't wait to to watch it i wish i did before this conversation (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's really really cool um but yeah pivoting i think towards a reductive rating round here this one gets a really this gets a really solid um for for me once again i i think that this is a you know for saul bass's only directorial outing i think this is incredibly accomplished the only issue i can see with it is that yeah he was so enamored by the psychedelic 2001 inspired sci-fi horror story he was telling that he kind of you know he did lose a little bit of interest in the human story of it but at the same time you could say that this is trying to be a post-human story in a way it's literally trying to you know suggest uh, a reality where you know we don't look at human life Life in that exact same way uh so the idea that you know he puts them into this sort of uh, uh experimental construction constructive maze uh doesn't completely bother me and i think if this just had the extended ending as the ending and there was a version of this movie that was just that i think this would even be high for um for me because cool. i think bass is just has such a strong and unique visual and sonic sens- sensibility to the film Again, combining, you know, like a piercing synth sounds that totally get you involved in the uh, the the reality of these uh, ants. The macro bug photography is insane and unlike anything that you've ever seen and absolutely gets you to empathize like you're watching bugs or ants like straight up perform action sequences you're watching them do funeral sequences yeah where you feel for them the time lapse imagery is amazing the crossfade montages and kind of abstract compositions of landscape formations and the various light sources that are all throughout the film that are so blinding and beautiful it's unreal and i think it all contributes to this film that is at once terrifying and surreal and strange to watch. Um, but ultimately I, I do feel this film and it feels absolutely beautiful and blissful and liberating by the end, which is a crazy thing to say about a movie where a guy sees a future where, you know, he doesn't have a face and the ants are dominating him in like a pyramid hierarchy. And he's like, this is pretty cool. 
Um, I, I for one, uh, welcome our new insect overlords. <laughs> and it sounds nuts that you could also experience that watching the film, but I swear to God, if you look up this original ending, that is how you will feel. It is uh, incredible. And uh, really, it is unlike anything I've ever seen. So it, yeah, high four for me. Yeah, I'll be looking it up right after this. Um, yeah, I, I recently, actually, in my apartment, had a little bit of an ant infestation. And so for a movie to make me sympathize with them. Did you sign a peace treaty with them? In any way. Uh, No, I didn't. We went all out (laughs) war, boy. I went hubs mode. And uh, I got to say, like, yeah, I almost wanted the grenade launcher that that hubs uses at the beginning. Um, So so anyway, if, if, yeah, if a film like this can make me sympathize with my mortal enemy, um, then I think it did a, a fantastic job. I, I love all of the uh, the photography of the ants and the way that they they light it. Like I was saying, it kind of has this like blue flashing light at a certain point when it's uh, showing the queen for the first time, and it reminds you of like aliens or something. It's it's very cool, and I, I do think that the the human aspect is a is a little bit undercooked just compared to how much he clearly cares about the ants. Um, but that mm-hmm. still adds a little bit of uh, something to the story, especially where it leads uh, at the end. So, um, yeah, I think this is a very inc- incredibly unique film that everyone should should check out. Yeah. So, yeah, four out of five for you, Andrew. Uh, I'm definitely going the same direction, which is if if I was recommending this like purely on the basis of it as a, you know, a narrative film, uh, it'd probably be a three. Yeah. But. But uh, yeah, I think the same thing you guys are describing, it, it's just really pushed over the edge for me in terms of you, it's very difficult to think of another film that is kind of anything like this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah wonder, mm-hmm. wonderful soundtrack, amazing, like all of that amazing macro photography, uh, which was apparently by um, wildlife photographer Ken Middleham. Uh, filmed all awesome of the, job. Good all job, those man. close-ups and stuff. <laughs> There's a sequence in it where, um, where the the farm girl is like lying down in the cot and and sleeping, and there's an ant crawling over her skin, and oh, yeah. Yeah. all all of the shots in that sequence are amazing. It, it kind of makes me think of um, I watched uh, I watched um, Tarsum sings the fall. No, not the fall. The cell. Okay. Uh, with with some gotcha. people recently, the Jennifer Lopez one, um, which has you know the, a lot of really really striking imagery of like desert landscapes and stuff like that, and, and that it, it really evoked that sort of like you know using using like the shadows and and shapes of this woman's body to to have it look like this ant's walking across a desert landscape, but also the camera is like under her clothes you can see the cloth yeah that stuff's crazy yeah. so it's it's not just like incredibly detailed close-up macro photography of an ant on someone's skin it's happening inside the layer between someone's clothing and their body and you're getting these like these amazingly composed shots and everything it's like really remarkable um yeah, it, it's, like it, it's insane how they can make this microscopic <laughs> photography like feel cosmic oh, um, I, in the way that they do. Jamie, I had moments at the start of the movie, like at the start of the movie when I was watching it, where I was like, are these little puppets? Yeah, you know, because <laughs> it's so detailed and filling up so much of the frame. And it's from like the mid 70s, you know. 
Yeah, it um, feels like they're actually yeah. choreographing ants. Like they're like they're sitting them down and being like, "You're going to go from point A to point B," but you're great performances. <laughs> yeah, crazy. yeah, it's crazy. So, so really early in the piece, I was just like, "Oh, are these are these like puppets or something?" But then looking at them in that level of detail, you're like, "No, they're too like you you yeah, couldn't be." be. Yeah, you couldn't be maneuvering something like that where there's just like absolutely no space in the sort of thorax and the the legs and everything for any kind right. of like mm-hmm. puppeteering or anything. Um, so yeah, like just just really remarkable stuff. Shots you have never seen before in a movie, and I'm sure you will never see again. Um, yep. If yeah. if it is yeah, because the movie bombed and they cut his ending out and said, "Yep, never make another one." Yep. Watch <laughs> That's the such uh, a shame. yeah, by real Knight of the Hunter Charles Lawton type shit. For real. It's like come on. Watch, watch the Let movie. Let the man make another film. Watch the movie and immediately watch the extended ending, which you can find on YouTube and all that sort of stuff in high quality. Yep. Um, but yeah, I'll, I will also yeah, check out check out a monster B movie about intelligent colonizing ants that has more in common stylistically with like Kubrick and Terrence Malick. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Check it out. But yeah, that being said, I think that wraps it up for everything this week. That was The Fly from 1986 and uh, Phase 4 from uh, 1974. Thanks so much, uh, guys, for listening. And thanks, uh, Andrew, for uh, joining us and for bringing these films with you. Uh, If you've got anything uh, to plug while you're here at the last minute here, this is where we have you do that. Uh, You can check out Bunta Vista. It's news about things that don't really matter, you know? (laughs) What's, Check it out. What's going on in uh, in British trucking accidents? Uh, what's <laughs> <laughs> we got a lot of segments. Uh, the, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. We're talking about weird things that happened at zoos. Uh, we're talking about <laughs> we're, we're talking about shipping news. We got all kinds of stuff. And and our pledge to you is that almost none of it will make you feel bad. There it is. <laughs> It's a great thing to feel in these times. So, yes, go check out uh, Boon to Vista. For our listeners, we are going to be back in one week's time uh, where we are going to be doing a bonus episode over on the Patreon for you guys where uh, last minute sub in because I forgot to mention to Jamie what it was before we started. (laughs) We are going to be talking about one, a film that I think Jamie just watched recently called The Hitchhiker from 1953, directed by uh, Ida Lupino, the first uh, Considered the very first uh, mainstream film noir film directed by a woman. Nice. I uh, wanted to rewatch cool it. So about, I'm excited uh, we are. I bet that's what I kind of figured. So it's a it's a kidnapping slash hitchhiker uh, kind of film, and we're going to be pairing it with Jamie can probably guess a film <laughs> called The Hitcher yeah. from 1986. Yes, also so a film. Yes, Rutger Hauer in that one, and it is strikingly this double feature came to me because it is the same premise, but the style. You know, the the Hitchhiker has more of this, um, uh, a little bit more of a, a calmer kind of sensibility to yeah. it, and the Hitcher yeah. is as downright uh, nightmarish, oh, nightmare. and filthy. At, yeah, yeah as you could possibly imagine the same premise done where a guy picks up a hitchhiker and he is found, uh, you know, uh, dealing instead with like a supernatural force of like pure random cruelty um, big, uh, and destruction. Big, so big points for C Thomas Howell in that movie as well. Um, yes, uh, he's, he's great in that. And I think he's a really like, I know he's still working now and everything, but, um, but I, I think he's a really unsung hero of like 80s cinema, you know, um, yeah. he's in the outsiders. He's in red dawn. He's in, um, 
pops up in ET. You know, he's in lots of lots, yeah. lots of cool little little flicks from that period, and I always really enjoy him. Yeah, and the, the the Hitcher is also written by Eric Red too, who wrote like Near Dark and uh, Blue Steel, and you know, so like other very moody genre films of the sort of like eight late eighties, early nineties. So very excited to talk about that. And then in two weeks' time, uh, TBA. Yeah, we are. We are figuring out we exactly what it is that we are doing, but you guys will uh, be very excited for the reason why, and we won't <laughs> say anything just yet. So That's right. TBA, we are trying to organize something with someone, but uh, yeah, we might have to sub something else in. We will find out in two weeks' time, but it's going to be a really sick episode, so look forward to it. But yeah, that being said, I think we're going to let Andrew get out of here because we were like, this is going to be the, your first episode that's not three hours, <laughs> and it still was. We can't do it. So we, we, can't we can't stop ourselves. We can't stop with you, man. Feel bad. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that'll wrap it up for everything this week. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy for hours at a time. Yes.